How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're seeing the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 70. Whoa, Damn, man. that sounds bigger. Bigger and better. Bigger and better every week. This is That's exactly what we, what we are. Yes, we're the Howard Ratner. Of this is how I win. <laughs> <laughs> how are you, Jake? I'm good. We were just we were just talking about uh, how. Well, I mean, was it you or Jack who brought this up? It was probably uh, you actually. I think it was me because yeah. So obviously, episode fifty fifty eight. I want to. Oh yes, fifty eight. Fifty eight. We did uncut gems yep. on the show, and as most people have seen that film by now. Uh, we think Jake's perfect Halloween costume would to be going as Howard Ratner, <laughs> pre-bullet hole. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, spoiler alert. <laughs> but we don't know where the bullet hole is. Yes. Could be in his toe. Yeah. He spends the whole film limping. We don't know. Um, I feel like he does spend the whole film limping. <laughs> yeah, from what we were just doing. Yeah. But um, that was a really good... Uh, yeah, really, really good costume idea for but, yeah. when Halloween rolls around, if and- we're allowed to leave the house by then. Well, I mean, it's fair to say that today, as of as of today, WA lifts a bunch more restrictions, which is awesome. We're gonna we're but gonna not all to, of them, not all, but we're gonna dine in hopefully later today's week, which is exciting. That is very exciting. Hopefully, we don't die, but we'll find out. But yeah, yeah, fingers crossed. You never know. I mean, we're both we're both going back to work, which yes. is exciting as well. We're not talking, uh, but we're not here to talk about our future date plans, Jake. We're here to talk about movies. Oh, I want to talk about date plans. <laughs> <laughs> In which, how many? How have you watched anything during uh, the week? I haven't watched a lot. That's okay. But um, actually, I'll jump in real quick with some uh, housekeeping. It's like last week. It'll be housekeeping. Much, be much more brief this week. Don't it's worry. got a consuela voice on. Uh, oh, uh, housekeeping. <laughs> housekeeping. Um, so I just wanted to give a heads up that this Saturday, I believe the twenty third of May, the Lunar Leaderville are hosting a sort of food hangout event. So cinemas aren't open yet, but if you wanted to. Relive that experience. They're selling chalk bombs and popcorn, uh, pop-up sale voucher, what, whatever it is. But I think that they're basically having a little gathering where you can buy popcorn and chalk tops and all that stuff. So Just think, to support the business? Exactly. So it's a bit of a hangout. Support the business until they can start screening films again. Yeah. And, uh, again, that's this Saturday, 23rd of May from 12 to 3 p.m. And sadly, I don't think I could even make it. I've actually got plans that day. Oh, so that's a shame. That would I mean, suck. I'll, I'll let you know. It can't, be, it can't be too long now. I think mm. maybe I think next month will be where they're starting to look into reopening cinemas. I yeah, think. I think the date because it's in phases, and I think cinemas are in phase three. Which, assuming the second phase, which starts to going is well, phase three today. is this okay? Well, then the phase after this one, yeah. assuming this all goes well, I think it's like June fifteenth or four weeks yes. from now. I think that was sort of yeah, the goal. Exactly. Um, and Tenet hopefully will come out on schedule. Which is well, exciting. I mean, it's been a topic of conversation over the last couple of weeks, mm. obviously with. Um, things moving a little bit more progressively in Australia over the rest of the world. Um, it does beg a interesting question for um, films out there, film distribution, and mm. how that will work or pan out. And obviously you talked about Trolls, World Tours, yep. online success, <laughs> um, which is it's a point of contention. It's like, will we actually get to see Tenant in cinemas mm. or are we going to have a weird sort of Irishman situation where... We may have cinemas operational, but are certain distributions going to allow right. their films to be screened? I think I think the big like positive or like the the best looking scenario is a lot of people are pointing to Tenet as the comeback to mm-hmm. cinemas. So 
the fact that that is like slated as the comeback means there's a good chance that will be in theaters one way or another. Mm. And exciting. will that mean it will be eligible online platforms in America? Mm. That that's a good point. Because well, I think they will still have cinemas over there, just not as smartly. Well, truth be told, the, here, the two major sources of income and avenue for films in just terms of distribution are the US and China, and both of them not really in any positions to be screening mm. films right now. So that's where I ask that question. I mean, not a lot of money is made off just Australian cinema, right. so, um, <laughs> as we've seen in previous years. So uh, that's where I'm kind of intrigued as to where, how, did, how someone's going to be earning their money if they're right, in charge yeah. of films distribution. What I would love to see is sort of a return to form, you know, pre-home release stuff in the 80s, or I don't know if videotapes came even before the 80s, is like a more extended runtime, like we see in festival films. Mm-hmm. Like Australia gets its run here, US gets its run. So like, more the roadshow. Yeah, exactly. Aspect, I think yeah. that would be awesome. And I think Uncut Gems had a, I mean, we talk about Irishman and Marisuri, these Netflix films that sort of had, they had to do these two weeks to get Oscar noms. But something like Uncut Gems, where it did have its theatrical release in the US, and then it came to Netflix in Australia and other regions in January, and then it came to Netflix. I mean, in the there's US a good chance the an international sort of roadshow element to film is is potentially on the cards. Um, I would love because, to see it. Yeah, you know, definitely right now it's you've got obviously, like I said, Australia's on the right path, and New Zealand's definitely on the right path. So it it, it could potentially start hop skipping. Uh, to different countries across the world that are recovering quicker than others are. So, I mean, it's likely. Yeah. There's a good chance we have everything happening. But until then, until it's all open again, support your local cinemas here at Leaderville uh, or up at Leaderville from where we're recording uh, this they, Saturday. Yeah, they, regardless of the larger ones, like if in Australia we have Hoyts, but in America there's definitely AMC. Hmm. Um I'm kind of struggling at the moment. Yeah, and and Hoyt's obviously none of their cinemas are below twenty seats, so I'll be very intrigued as to how they are going to approach it. I Whereas, think the smartest way to do it is just to have that each middle seat you can't sit in the middle seat. Yeah, and it halves their numbers, but at least they're open. Well, see, this is the interesting thing though, Jake, is it's the operational costs. So mm. just because you could be open doesn't necessarily mean it's not beneficial. So you're finding even right now although things are starting to open up here in Western Australia, things like bars and stuff aren't going to reopen if they're too big. Mm. Like, so certain venue sizes, if they're too large, the upkeep, it's not profitable even if they open at half strength because they need to be operating at 70, 80% to be profitable. Yeah, but I, I guess I just don't which see is, which a is, scenario where it's not as good as just com- being completely shut down for a month. Mm, I mean, that's, that, that's true. I, I be intrigued. I definitely think Luna's going to benefit. <laughs> Because they've got so many different cinema sizes. They've yeah. got 20-seaters, 30-seaters, 50-seaters, all that So stuff. they could honestly start to operate even now if they really wanted to, just in the yeah. smaller ones. But I guess it's because it comes back to not a lot of films are coming out too, so it's the distribution. Yeah. It's the hand-in-hand. Hand. I would love them to replay all the classics, and I'm sure they're going to do that for a, a period of time, especially because if so much of the new films are coming from the US, which they're not this year, then... They might have to do Well, that. exactly. And I mean, if we take some of the, the films we've even done on the show that we went and saw classical sort of... Yeah, we re- saw Matrix. We saw Matrix. So. I saw Pop Fiction in the cinema last year. So, so definitely doable. There is AT2 that was in cinemas last year. It wasn't yeah. Train Spotting, but it was AT2. Yes. Um, so I think that's definitely on the cards to have potential uh, reruns of old classics. And that'd be pretty awesome to go see. Mm. Um, I'd be there every week, man. Absolutely. 
Yeah, well, you're, you're seriously missing <laughs> you, it. You've had oh, withdrawal symptoms. God, I saw, like, The Gentleman by myself. I saw In the Blood It Runs by myself. Like, I saw a bunch of stuff. Just yeah. like, oh, I'll just watch this in the cinema. I miss it. But, I'd love um, to see something like, if you were to pick one film right now, just mm. off the top of your head, no thinking about it, that you want to see uh, a classic cinematic rerun of what, right. on, a, on a screen, what would it be? I'm going to say this because it's not a classic classic, but my immediate thought was Dark Knight. Never saw it on a big screen. Okay. Fucking love to. Well, I mean, to be fair, the one that I come to my head's around the same sort of time. I mm. would definitely want to see There Will Be Blood on the big right. screen. Right, yeah, that would be a good one. So, um, also not a classic, but I think both the 2007 releases, so it's pretty funny. Yeah, at least within a year of release for sure. Yeah, but, so... Uh, yeah. Uh, the other thing I wanted to quickly shout out is a uh, big RIP uh, to both uh, Lynn Shelton, who is the director of Your Sister's Sister and Episodes of Mad Men, and she's working with many great actresses today. Yeah, like 54. I think it was. Jesus. She was really young, pretty sure. Yeah. It's not great. And uh, someone relatively older, but still just as devastating, uh, Fred Willard from stuff like Anchorman, This Is Spinal Tap, all of that stuff. Neither of them died of COVID, so that's a no, plus in this whole I think whole Fred situation. Willard was like 85, 86 years yeah, old Yeah, I think he died of natural causes. I think then Shelton died of like an unidentifiable blood disease or something like that, mm. but neither was COVID. So that's a nice little yeah. thing to add on, I guess, that this um, tragedy didn't specifically target them. No. Um, and yeah, it's really, it's, it's really sad with, uh, Fred Willard in particular, cause you know, he's sort of one of those, I always attribute him to be, he's one of those guys who always used to pop up and I think he's in all the pitch perfect films or something like, no, yeah. Anchorman films at he's least. In, yeah, definitely both Anchormans. Um, he's in a lot of so those sort of that. just, and he, he's always funny and he always just, yeah. yeah. It's a great comedic timing. It's just like the way he can contort his face as well. Like it's not Jim Carrey levels, but it's like, he's great. It's yeah. a great classic. He will be dearly missed. Got a lot. Got a big resume by the end. Of <laughs> solid resume. Yeah. So good CV. Um, but I was kind of blown away by how, like, how old he was. Like when it like came up. Right. Yeah. Because Anchorman's like, not an old film. Yeah, but I guess it's like the Christopher Lee effect. Christopher Lee was like eighty nine or ninety when he was in The Hobbit, and you're just like, <laughs> what? That's insane. Bare bones at that point. <laughs> it's like that. Well, all right. Well, let's. I'm going to shoot it to you first because I haven't okay. seen a lot this week. So, what, what did you watch? Let this me week let week? me whip out the old letterbox. I know um, this this wouldn't have shown up in your letterbox because okay. I know you watched. Uh, well, first off, you actually watched the the series finale for Clone Wars. I did. It's and really I think, sad. I think we forgot to talk about it last week. Um. Yeah. So, uh, sort of a weird sort of situation with that. I, I ended up. Uh, having a lot to think about with that um i the thing with with star wars is is i have such a love-hate relationship and i think i talked about it on the rise of skywalker episode that i don't even know if i can consider myself a star wars fan anymore (laughs) um because i seem to dislike a lot more than i like um and i think the, the the strange thing is that this show is definitely one of those just pure standouts as to why what you can do with assign a sci-fi property and do it well and explore uh dave filoni i mean he's already been attributed to be one of the the stronger sort of creative heads in star wars because he seems to take he's taken even some of the most hokey ideas that lucas came up with in the prequels and somehow managed to spin them into (laughs) something uh more digestible and then even compelling at times and um, I think that that's a full, uh, like, congrats and attribution to him. Like, 
there's so many interesting behind the scenes things where Lucas would come in and be like, oh, I want to bring Darth Maul back. And then Dave, uh, Dave Filoni's like, how? And he's like, I don't know, figure it out. And then somehow, not only did he manage to bring back this character, it's not really a spoiler. He's been, he was around in the show and even the- Wait, who's Darth Maul? Darth Maul from Phantom Well, I mean, he was in Solo. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it makes sense because he's in the clue. I don't care. I don't care. And I think (laughs) the reason why that show was so strong is it, first off, it really fleshed out characters that, and elevated some of the prequel films. Not all of them. You can't save Attack of the Clones. Just, No. It's easily. I would have said it's the worst Star Wars film, but I honestly do think Rise of Skywalker is the worst Star Wars I, film. Honestly, I've thought about this recently as well, and yeah, we got to compare those two specifically back to back. Because it, <laughs> yeah, but honestly, that show takes, uh, you know, characters that although everyone really enjoys Hugh McGregor in the original prequel trilogy, he's not super fleshed out. He's more fleshed out than other characters, but every character in it is either hokey or they're just not got not enough depth to them and this this clone war show which is canon Mm. does definitely give them all their backstories and motivations for why they act particularly in revenge of the sith right as the final four episodes intersect with episode three well that was sort of the next thing i was going to ask is how does the finale sort of not only affect the rest of the show like does it stick the landing but the whole sort of canon of star wars oh it it completely enhances it because it adds a whole other context to every element in revenge of the sith and it really elevates revenge of the sith like i th- thank god <laughs> i mean i re- like i do think that's the strongest of the mm. the prequel films but it's also got the most heavy subject matter so it's easy to ex- we've well, talked of, about it before it's the big payoff the whole film's a big payoff uh, yeah and we've talked about it before just because something deals with heavier subject matter doesn't make it better automatically um but i do think revenge of the sith for the most part carries that sort of that weight over but the show brings it to a whole other level because every character in it sort of has more justification and context to their Mm -hmm. actions you know and so the pacing that once felt quite rushed in revenge of the sith is far more like understandable now they got more time to flesh out yeah and it's things like humanizing this whole art like this army of of quote clones and it's like essentially if you watch the prequels without the show they're basically the human equivalent of a droid army. They're just the the the, mm. the, the yin and yang. They they have no character. We don't know their relationship. They just turn on spoiler to a film that's fifteen years old. When they turn on the Jedi, it's like it's got sad music and it's I guess it's nicely it's really tactfully done, but at the same time it's like at the end of the day they were just kind of the mindless drone army of the other side. Right. And the the big payoff is they betrayed them. And by having this show, it really gives dynamic to that and really adds to sort of the conflict of interest that and humanizes these characters that before were just literally blank slates. And I really like that um, sort of dynamic and sort of the question that they didn't know when the war was over what was going to happen to them, mm. which when you think about that, it's like, there are little an it, well, there are little lines this. in each of the prequel films which it's almost like they were like, okay, well, that wasn't well explained in the movies. Let's take the time to explain that here. You know, mm-hmm. they they age twice as fast, so they're literally bred for war, but they're they're humanoid. They're not robotic, so they have conscious. So it's that sort of they push more into like the almost the Blade Runner sort of replicant type thing. replicant stuff. Yeah, and I really like that angle they take on it. Um, 
it's a really good show. Mm. It's a honestly, if you love Star Wars and you haven't watched that show, I'm I'd be baffled. But the problem I've seen the movie, the Clone Wars movie. Mm, that's <laughs> the worst one to watch. Um, <laughs> and I think that the, the shame of it is um, that most people won't ever get to watch this show unless they actively pursue Star Wars. And Disney Plus have done a really good thing. They've it's all there now. Eh? I, it's all on there, but. They've also condensed it down to, I think, 22 must-see episodes, which is sort of like... Is it all available, though? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah it's all available. Well, you can watch yeah, the whole show, but then. if you're really in a rush, there's like the 22 must-see episodes. Okay. And I think that helps condense, almost condense it to, not movie level, but at least miniseries level. So it's like... Gotcha. It just sort of would the help. Supercut. Yeah, the supercut. It helps bridge that narrative a little bit more. But... um. I really, yeah, really good show. Mm. I mean, it's weird growing up with a show like that and then being a fully grown adult by the time it finishes. Like, that show started, I think, in 2010 or 2011. So it's like, you got to think how old. We were 14, 14, 13, 14, (laughs) and now we're 22. There's there's plenty of stuff like that, though, around. Like, I mean, a lot of people point to Harry Potter. I think we were just a little too young to experience the the real growing up with him because we were both 12, 13 when those movies ended. So it was like, we were still... We we're kind of starting at the age that he started in when he finished, so it was off for us. But like a lot of, there's a lot of properties like that, which is cool. I mean, I like honestly finishing that and then looking back at the the nine films. I am adamant that episode. If you're talking about the nine main films, mm. adamant episode nine is the worst. And I, it uh, wouldn't surprise me I, because yeah. just because, and it's only saving grace is it's got way better chemistry between its big three, but like big three cast members, just like their performances. Yeah, yeah, they're better actors, but. <laughs> that that doesn't excuse terrible dialogue and horrible shoo-ins and horrible. Give me give me Last Jedi any day over over uh, Rise oh, of Skywalker. Give me a high five. We're gonna yeah. finally agree on something. Yeah. Kind of. I would legitimately watch <laughs> Last Jedi like ten times before I'd watch Rise of Skywalker. I I know you're serious as well about. I'm that, like. fuming when we went and saw that movie. <laughs> I don't think it really came out in the review of that. But oh, I think it did. It, <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a weird one because I actually thought we were going to fight a lot more than to come out of that as a no, community. Because I hated it just as much as you did. I think. Well, maybe not just as much, but I, every issue that you had with it, I had it too. So yeah, yeah. Was... And if if anything, I was the one trying to extrapolate. I was a minor. I was trying to extrapolate any bit of good out of that film, and I was like, Adam C- Driver. Adam but Driver. Then you could watch Adam Driver. CPO's and funny. I could give you like the costumes are nice. I don't know. C-3PO has, like, way too much time in that movie, by the way. I liked him in it. Yeah. But, but then they killed him and didn't kill him and killed him and didn't kill him and did that with every other character in the whole franchise. There's so. no tension. There was no tension in that movie. Anyway, we're not doing a... JJ <laughs> is actually a hack. <laughs> <laughs> I like Super 8. Yeah, but it's probably just, like, a hack of something else. Steven Spielberg, clearly, yeah. but... Honestly, Not, not I, that he's a hack, but yeah. I really need to think about... Like, evaluate him on a director's corner if he's actually worth one. Have you seen Super 8? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think because I was a 10-year-old kid making films as well. That's why I loved it so much. But it's a, it's a Spielberg film. But, oh, well. Um, yeah, all right. In terms of the, the filmscape, what have you seen? Um, okay. So, interesting week. Um, predominantly stuck with documentaries this week. Um, okay. So, alternated between documentaries and stand-up specials. Um, 
Two from 2020. I'll go with the stand-up specials quickly because they're not hugely interesting. Uh, Pete Davidson was okay. It was a fine mm. 45, 50-minute special. was not anything special. But... Um, <laughs> I see what you did there. Taylor <laughs> Taylor Tomlinson Quarter Life Crisis was really funny. Okay. And um for someone of her age to be that funny was because generally was reading, comics she's one of the mid mid twenties, yeah. Yeah, twenty five. Yeah, I read the log line for that. Um so sort of was like surprised because generally younger comics fact of the matter is age makes comics generally better simply because more experience not, more experience more life experience yeah, too probably There's, less of a shit to give yes people's thoughts yeah um <laughs> whereas um yeah unfortunately uh yeah so generally i don't feel too positive on younger comedians um and i generally don't uh find myself quite like interested in female comics generally because right. they're just their sense of humor just isn't my sense of humor but it's sort she of definitely a bridged reserved thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, like I don't expect I, I don't expect women to really enjoy Jim Jeffries, right? Okay. Or Bill Burr. Um, <laughs> they should though. <laughs> Everyone should love Bill. Burr. Yeah, but like, <laughs> you know, there's a thing, and they and they they comment on it too. But generally speaking, uh, you know, I can only hear so many dick jokes right. from like oh it's funny but like is everything about sex i What's hate comics that just dudes? focus on sex too it doesn't matter if they're you know guy oh, or girl oh, yeah. their oh, whole okay. hour is just about sex it's like okay cool there are other things they're a teenage they're a teenager at that point it's like it's the same thing as like the last four or five years if you make a trump joke and you go onto a trump rant i'm like cool yeah, yeah. That's, that's my thing i like i still know a lot of people are like hey look at this dumping trumps and i'm just like i i know <laughs> it's Donald Trump. <laughs> it's, it's, it's. I just laugh at the absurdity of the US's situation at this point. And I yeah. just, I'm not gonna about, like get into a joke about it. You know? you know, it doesn't matter who makes the comment, but it's like I've watched. We're sick of it. You're right. Yeah, every 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 second comic makes like, oh boy, I can't believe this guy is the president. He's like, he's been president for three and a half years now, guys. Yeah. Come on, like. And he's gonna run a second term because you guys are gonna do it. <laughs> you so guys can't get enough of it. I would definitely recommend that one. It just came up on Netflix. Um, but in terms of documentaries, I covered three documentaries this week, mm. um, all in completely different areas. Fields. So okay. uh, another one that recently was released was Have a Good Trip, uh, The Adventures in Psychedelics. Uh, ah, okay, I like the title, yeah. Yeah, it's good, right? Yeah. Um, and it's a documentary that covers multiple celebrities' psychedelic trips experiences, whether they had good trips or bad trips. Yeah. Uh, and it covers a, an array of people that have done it one time, people have been doing it for 30 years. Mm. And um, so anyone from uh, Ben Stiller to like the yes. late Carrie Fisher was in it. Right, yeah. Um, and um, it's kind of, it's performative, it's sort of a mixture of performative and, and sort of, uh, like it, yeah, it's a weird hybrid sort of film. Um it's predominantly dri the narratives driven by Nick Offerman and uh, the other bloke from Parks and Rec, who I am <laughs> forgetting the name of now. Some dude. No, no, he's pretty. He's pretty big. I'll have a double check on it. But right. um, yeah. So Nick Offerman and and uh, Nick Adam it? Scott. Oh, uh, I know Adam Scott from from Parks and. Well, I think they're predominantly famous for Parks and Rec. But right, yeah. I have seen them well, in Adam films Scott, too. He's in, I was rewatching The Disaster Artist and he's in that little clipping at the beginning. Man, this movie's so wild, man. <laughs> man, I really got to rewatch The Disaster Artist. I don't Artist. know why they put that. It was fine. Had a good mix of sort of... It was an interesting it sort of... It was better. 
Sorry, go on. There were some funny <laughs> stories in there. There were some scary stories in there. And I don't know if the film is... It's definitely not trying to ride the pro-psychedelic train nor the anti-psychedelic train. It's definitely just sort of like, oh, these are everyone's experiences. Right. You be the judge. Um, and, yeah. So, I don't know. Because I, I was trying to figure out the angle if it was definitely trying to be like, oh, yeah, look, psychedelics are cool. Look at all these cool celebrities doing it. Hmm. But then it would cut to, like, uh, you'll, cut, you'll watch Carrie Fisher's one and you actually kind of just feel bad because it's sort of like, obviously... Obviously what happened to her... Well, and sort of kind of just how frazzled her mental state is. Like, mm. she never, f- like, she's just, you know, for someone who was so, uh, you know, smart and and it definitely felt like she was a little, oh, whereas you mm. contrast that with someone like Ben Stiller, who was, like, very grounded. It was like, man, I really wish I didn't do it because it freaked me out. <laughs> and But then it'll cut to someone else and it's like, it'll cut to Sting, who's like, oh, you know, if you learn how to control it, you know, it's all fine. <laughs> he's, do- he's doing the arm thing right so, now. So, um, yeah, interesting yeah. documentary, easy watch. So, kind of a bit of fun. Give you a laugh at the same time you're learning something about psychedelics. That's always a good thing. Uh, do you want me to keep going or do you want me to throw um, it back to you? You can keep going if you want. I don't have a lot to... Okay. I can pack it all in at the end for you. Okay, so I only uh, watched two other docos and then one film. Um, so, the other docos were uh, Behind the Curve which is about flat earthers. Uh, did Jack talk about this at some point? I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, One of our of, earlier episodes, like the first 30 episodes. Like that. It sort of had a very um, Hail Satan vibe in the sense mm. that it was. it's about a sort of a minority group and their sort of movement to be approved. Very much like, you know, the satanic cult is not about Satan. Like, the, it's that misperception of Satanism. Mm. Behind the Curve is definitely about a... a uh, an assembly group of people that believe the earth is flat and sort of the uh honestly at the end of it you you get the same sort of com- uh, community vibes that oh, it honestly feels like they're trying to angle it as as this group is they have a belief and their their group believes in it and they've been ex- you know extradited from the rest of the world because of their beliefs. Um, <laughs> the rest uh, of obviously, the round world. I actually think Satan, like the, the Hail Satan one, was a little bit more uh, intriguing, I guess, because it's it's a technically it's a religious belief rather than a, a, a based scientific, on a scientific belief, yeah. belief, which is a little different and a little bit more moronic to follow. I'm sorry, but um, <laughs> and I definitely think the doco highlights sort of their hu- human nature, but they're also ignorant nature and their denial of, of facts like they conduct multiple experiments to right. prove their theory but they all come out proving the earth is round i read a funny letterbox review where the person who wrote it they're just like oh um here's a here's an experiment that'll prove the earth is flat and then it has like a little star asterisk and it's like doesn't prove it and they're like oh well you know the results weren't very great let's try again this is and then it's well, just that on repeat and they, they sort of <laughs> The, the the thing is that there's actual like scientific heads talking heads in it hmm. and it's actually really interesting because they they counter it with being, by saying well when you conduct an experiment and you're trying to prove a point if it, if the experiment fails you'll just find another experiment you're not like you'll cuz if you really believe in it that's sort of how yeah. science well, that, works it's more of a mentality of the person doing it whether they need to prove a point so they're just going to keep doing the well same yeah thing i mean that's again. the that's the whole point of a, like a hypothesis it's mm. like you know when we were trying to prove gravity we couldn't just uh, when we first were trying to prove gravity existed you know you couldn't just drop an apple and be like that's gravity it's <laughs> like there's no 
you know, now we can do that, but it's like, I guess... Yeah, but we're in an age now where in, in this hypothetical world, we've proven a million times that gravity does not exist and they're still trying to. I think that's yeah. sort of the counter, I feel. Exactly. So it's sort of... Um, it's interesting because they came... Like, they had one experiment where the, the guy was basically like, hey, if we can get this perfect $20,000 uh, machine, we can prove that the Earth, the earth <laughs> doesn't grand. rotate, so thus it's flat. And then, of course, they got the machine, and it did show the rotation. And then they were like, "Oh, but the sky's rotating, not not the Earth." It's... Uh, uh, so it was really interesting. I'm but gonna, it's... I'm gonna have to look because like you and Jack have talked about this now, and it's like I obviously it's something I laugh at, but it's like, I really want to see this. Just to... it's honestly, it's really like engaging in the sense of it's not like. I don't think you're ever going to reach levels of that sort of engagement that fire would give you or something right. like that. But it definitely between this and hail Satan, you definitely there's there's different, same but different mm. sort of thing. Like I think in hail Satan, that sort of that documentary about the satanic cult was sort of like because it was more the the the, the shift of of trying to gain an understanding as to... I mean, they're both the same. You're trying to gain an understanding of something, you'd be like, what? what's the satanic cult about? Right, what? Yeah. A, how do people believe the earth is flat? Like, And, of course, they let you in on their insider. And I, I definitely think uh, the the film tries to point out that, at the end of the day, it's some people just want to be the head of something, mm. I think. And, and that's a Control. big... Well, it's, it's being a leader and an icon and even... The, the the main characters, uh, although they come off like humble and they're like, oh, I can't believe I'm famous in this little community. But at the end of the day, it's it's sort of the ego. It's always creeping under. I mean, that was sort of the same thing with Tiger King, where there's a bunch yeah. of people who they feel like they have this sort of connection, but it's it's a lot of people are just like, no, they're just they're trying to show off. Look how many look how many dangerous animals I can have in one photo next. To What's the dynamic between Carol Baskin and uh, what's his name? Who's the Joe Exotic? Joe Exotic. And it's sort of like, and well, how he transformed have, yeah. into his character when the show was being recorded and stuff like that. And at the end of the day, it's always, it's, it's normally human, trip. yeah, it's human ego. You hear Nicolas Cage is going to play him now, you know. He, I don't care that Nicolas Cage is playing him, I care that they're doing another series. Just make it a film. Just make it a feature. Why does it have to be it, another Don't make seven? it at all. It's this, it's this. <laughs> It, it was fine. It was a fine show. It wasn't a great show. And I think they're trying to capitalize on something that most people are going to forget about. In, in like, it's going to be a series. It's I mean, people have already Netflix. forgot about it, but, like... That's what I mean. It's, it's the whole thing. But it's like, it's like when they extended Harry Potter. And it got to the point where it's like, well, these are just really bad films now. Yeah. With the, the crimes of Grindelwald or whatever the fuck they're doing. I don't know. Yeah. It, it, you know, it, it made for a compelling enough series. But I don't think it would be a very compelling film. Because what's the film going to tell us new that the series haven't told us? It's true, but, I mean, you, you can say the same thing about the Ted Bundy stuff. Although I do not like that film. But yeah, most but do. The, mm, the Ted Bundy one's a little different because it's kind of about... I mean, you could have made a Ted Bundy film before that show, the Ted Bundy tapes, came out because it's about a serial killer that killed, like, 50 women. There's, a, there's definitely a... Yeah, uh, but it's the same in the sense that they made this show and... Yeah, it's a little closer tied, but the the film was like just to extend the longevity of people talking about mm. Ted Bundy again. Fair enough. So Fair I enough. think they're the same. We're not reviewing the, the show. Oh, you I would you say know that. my thoughts in episode 17. <laughs> uh, so, and then the other doco was the 13th, which is talking about the, it was a Oscar nominated one from a okay. couple of years back about the US prison system and how 
fun it is. Yeah, it was another one of those. Yeah. I don't really want to spend too long on it. It was a good enough doco. It's sort of it's one of those shaking my head docos where you're just like, oh boy, uh, oh boy, the, the world is golly. so great. Um, <laughs> but yeah, really good doco. It's on Netflix. Would recommend it. Um, it sort of talks about how the Thirteenth Amendment has a loophole in it, which okay. is the one about slavery. Um, and sort of how... I didn't realise there were that many amendments. Just going to be honest. Yeah. You always hear yeah. about the Second Amendment. That's not so the 13th that's one is the one that obviously made, labor, made slavery illegal, passed by Abe Lincoln. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and in the, the sort of the, the subtext, it's basically like, oh, well, no one will be a slave uh, un- unless they are a criminal, so they lose their rights as a, mm. as a person. So the whole thing was that after the 13th Amendment, got passed a lot of african-american people found themselves getting into prison for really petty crimes and put to work oh you mean what still happens today well (laughs) and obviously it it starts back in there and then literally goes decade by decade as to how it was really good and they would do a really good transition where they would pick a song of the time that would like reflect the The decade and yeah like well, more more like it was African American artists. Oh, okay. Um, and yeah, it's it shows What's how the song from Get Him to the Greek. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and it shows it, it was a really compelling oh, documentary, no. and it shows how um, obviously different movements set things back, and obviously you know at first you're watching the doco and you think, oh, this is just you know it's a, definitely angling to be like, oh, this was all the Republicans' fault, but then. Yeah, multiple. Uh, and then it gets it takes to a point where it gets to the nineties and the Clinton administration, and he was the one that actually a Democrat was the one that set up and allowed prisons to capitalize on this. So the boom in the uh, the major boom, the biggest boom, came from the nineties to the the aughts, which was the aughts. they <sighs> you know, you, they like trip they doubled in numbers. They went from like a million to two million because mm. of certain policies that were passed by the Democrats. And it's sort of like, so it shows that whole, it's not a politically fueled film. It's a, it's a race fueled mm. uh, documentary. Definitely for sure. And it definitely shows, uh, also the exploration. It's trying to show sort of the, the portrayal of, of the black man in America, American society and how that sort of that time transcends and how things like the media influenced even, there were like you know that separation and that anxiety and mm. it definitely touches on a lot of things that blind spotting touched on uh film. which was a far more condensed version of this this like this time frame obviously yeah. and i feel like blind spotting is very in the moment though oh yeah it but it feels like this goes back and back and back yeah but it, it all comes back to what uh, yeah yeah types. in terms of the origins of it um yeah. but yeah no it's a it's a solid documentary and it's a you'll just it's not a happy documentary unlike probably the other two that were way more <laughs> fun to watch. fun to watch but i mean it sounds like the most interesting one today like that's the one i want to go home and watch now okay. sort of out of the free told me about you're it. not a happy person jake <laughs> <laughs> we know this <laughs> this is how i win Zeke. <laughs> yeah okay so i'll throw it back to you i'm sorry i took so, so long no that's all good um all right well the only i only watched one other film this week other than films that are relevant to the film of the week uh mostly because of red dead which i finally beat thank god um 
I won't talk about the game, but I will just say this though. Mm-hmm. Something to be said about a fifty-five plus hour story. Yes, that pacing is so strong and so good. And honestly, I compare it to The Godfather in terms of how it weaves the prequel into the following story. Is it better? No, I don't think so. Mm. But the, but like in terms of like a Western epic, it's that equivalent. And like if you play the first game, you're like, this is a great story. The second game will like blow your mind in terms of how it follows through. And again, a brilliantly paced 55 hour story that I wanted more of. It's it's interesting because I can't I sit feel down. Feels so bad because I've only got through about two hours of it. It's <laughs> like oh, I mean. It took me a year and a half in a pandemic to play it's the a, game. It's <laughs> the scale of it. It's just sort of overwhelming. It's, it's so overwhelming. It really is. It's sort of like how I've only watched The Godfather and I've never stuck through for the second or the third one yet, which is... Well, it's similar pacing. I mean, obviously, Red Dead's a longer interactive game, but yeah. it's similar in pacing. Is It takes its time to really let the story be told and unfolded. And mm-hmm. that's what I appreciated about it so much. And I've read people's thoughts, like people love the game, but they're like, oh, it goes, the epilogue is like six hours. And it is, it's a six hour epilogue. That's just like the end of the story, but it, it's, it's six all. Six hour epilogue. Basically, yeah, it's crazy. It, literally epilogue part one, epilogue part two, like three hours apart. It's insane. But again, like I can't, sometimes I can't sit for a 90 minute film. You know? That's true. It's, it's just, it's an interesting comparison. I wanted to bring it up. But, uh, and that's the reason why I've only watched one film this week. <laughs> okay, but what was that film? Uh, so that film was called Swallow. It was actually recommended to me by a friend of the show, Jesse Newell. So you can go on Stan and watch it now. I think it was a Sundance film. It's now, you can watch it on Stan. And all I'll say about the story is, so it's about a girl who's played really well by Hayley Bennett, uh, uh, who uh, she's sort of recently pregnant housewife mm-hmm. to uh, this guy who's part of this big, his whole family is part of this big business thing. They're very business-minded. And I got the sense that she was sort of losing her identity for her. And what this results in is her starting to swallow and eat uh, house, like objects around the house. It's like pins and marbles and just random stuff. And there's a term for this. I can't remember what it's like. It starts with a K. I don't want to say the wrong. I don't want to say like, mm-hmm. oh, it's called kink or something like that. But uh, there's a term for it for people who do this, who start swallowing random inedible objects. And what I there's a lot that I love about this film. There's a lot that I didn't like that I've come around on. And again, I don't want to spoil it because I think this is a... I, the more I think about it, the more I really like this film. It's actually really great. And the reason for that is th- that initial investment of, oh, okay, there's this person and I'm I'm invested in a story because of this. I understand the situation. And that it's all quite Mun- abstractly... Munchausen syndrome. Oh, okay. Munchausen. That's interesting. Uh, the repeat ingestion of foreign objects, self-mutilation, drug abuse was first carped in 1950. Okay. More Munch Chosen, I think it is. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. No, that's okay. <laughs> but um, what I found interesting, first off, as a film, I think it's the first time director, it's really well directed in terms of the blocking is really interesting, the direction is really interesting. It's a short, like, 90-minute film, and I love that they don't have to shoot around, like, props to the props, because they didn't have to shoot around her swallowing these things that she shouldn't be swallowing. Mm-hmm. There's this sort of extra layer of uncomfortability because of the visual, but also the fact that she's pregnant. So it's like, well, how's this going to affect the baby? baby? Like, when she has to poop these items out, there's, like, blood on the toilet seat and stuff like that. It's, it's really uncomfortable to watch in that certain thing. Now, I won't go further into the story. I highly recommend you watch this. But there is sort of a turning point when a backstory is revealed. And at first, I didn't like it. I was like, oh, here we go. It's getting a bit cliched. But uh, what, I, what I've come to sort of think about this film is how it, it's not the story I thought it was telling me. And the last shot of the film is really indicative of, oh, this is what they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
I would love to do a f- podcast on this film. We probably we won't be able to do one for at least five to ten episodes because we've got to go for our, our decade challenge. Uh, but if later in the year, if we do go back to this film, I'd love to talk about its ending and sort of the story that's hidden under the story that's yeah. told in the front of you. And uh, all of that stuff was that was really great. Um, the only thing I didn't really like, the mixing was a little odd. You know, when you, you know, student films where the, the Foley's like not mixed well. Yeah. Like, oh, so that's a bit loud. So it sounds a bit obvious. Yeah, like her putting down the glass or like, wow, that was really loud for some reason. Or like the, the way the music is like the volume turns down and up, like you can hear it adjust to dialogue. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I shouldn't be able to notice that, that kind of stuff. So, yeah. but a really, really interesting film. You should watch it. And okay. Tell me about it. Um, that's, that's it for me. Okay. Well, the only other film I watched this week does bridge into our film of the week. It's done by the same director. Uh, mm. This morning, finished it. Uh, Steve Jobs. Yeah, boy. And it's, uh, you know, it's always nice to, I mean, we're going to talk, a bit more about Danny Boyle and our director's corner later in the show, but uh, I really enjoyed this film. It has, God, I mean, I have a lot of Fassbender fave performances. <laughs> I'm a huge Fassbender fan, but this is one of my favorite performances from Seth Rogen, probably even Kate Winslet. But I mean, I've I've seen her in a couple of things I really enjoy. She's really so. great in a lot of things. But I love her look in this film specifically. I like her like accent, mm. uh, like the 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 Polish as like the Polish twang. Cause she is Polish, and but it like comes out occasionally and it's like wow just some some of that dedication is just crazy but it, it's a really good um film and it, i said this to you in the car on the drive over here uh the framing device i love the idea behind it you know it's a sorkin boil just written by sorkin yeah the structure of the three different but, timelines um so. having yeah the three critical points in his career and using that as a framing device to all the important people that affected his life and mm. his art and sort of shaped him into the the cynic asshole person he was. And it was, uh, you know, and it definitely wasn't a pampering uh, biopic. And um, I can't even remember when he passed away. It was probably after was, this film. It was in the last decade. Before, no, before this film. Yeah, he passed before both um, films. Because I can't imagine him letting this film come out. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was definitely after he passed away. Yeah, and but sort of the, you know, th- that tends to happen with a lot of big names and celebrity figures when they pass away. The biopics come and often <laughs> they are pampered not nice portrayals or if they're showing flaws it's due to a reason that was out of their control and it just makes them more look like a victim rather than a Mm. uh, a cynical creator um whereas this this asshole and i think that's what you know to appreciate biopics like this um that have that sort of uh edge to them you know you 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 at some points you deplore his actions and it's it's really it's really compelling it was like the two hour it's apparently two hours long it flew by i was like i didn't even yeah i thought it was shorter than that i was like what just and i was blown (laughs) away by it um and how you know for it's easy to credit that to sorkin's sort of writing but i definitely think boyle's direction is critical in it too and how Hmm. he frames certain like sets up certain scenes that really do pay off in latter parts so um really enjoyed that film you know what um i don't, I don't know if you would have known did you watch this on like a streaming service or uh yeah netflix okay but so... i had to use a vpn right yeah no i was gonna say in terms of the quality brazil film, netflix brazil did you notice that each chunk of the film was shot on different formats actually i definitely noticed a distinct difference between the mm. 84 
and the 98 version, so but I the, didn't see the middle version difference that The much. first chunk was shot on 16mm film, the second mm-hmm. chunk was shot on 35mm film, and the last chunk was shot on digital. Okay. Which is yes, such uh, a cool detail. That's clever. See, that's, that's, just, that's just smart thinking right there. Yeah. Um, the digital one's probably a little trickier for 98 because that wouldn't be It's a little correct. early for sure, but um, I if love that was 2008, it would have worked really well. Yeah. Because um, that was when Zodiac was 2007. So, uh, yeah. Um, but I really like that. And I, yeah, like I said, I think that was one of Seth Rogen's best performances too. Uh, and he was, you know, he was easily the most likable person so his outburst <laughs> at the end is the is the best payoff i think really insane yeah so um yeah i really enjoyed that film um but that's all i've got to say about that um oh, well, talk more go. about danny boy a bit later in the show just in a moment now this is when we uh tear into our career updates uh i guess not really much to say your f- or our film crater was still up on static film festival yes you can still catch that there and X-Rental comes up tonight at 6pm, so... That's uh, some good timing right there. Yeah, exactly. So by the time you're listening to this, there's 99% chance it's already up, mm-hmm. uh, unless you're real quick on the draw <laughs> with the show. So, yeah, you can go on Static Film Festival, and I think I think all the films, they're up until, like, the 24th, and then they drop. So try and catch it before then, but... Yeah, I mean, and then they announce winners, I think. I th- yeah, just that. So I think, I think when we do our next show, we might know who won, like, the awards and stuff. Which is yeah. cool. It's exciting. Yeah. Well, it was good Good to be a part of it. Yeah, exactly. It's cool. To, it, especially because, like, I don't think... I mean, this is the first festival I've probably, like, been involved in some capacity. And it sucks that it's all online because of the pandemic mm-hmm. and everything. But, you know, it's still cool to be involved. Um, uh, Definitely the first one for me that there was, like, this longevity to it where it lasts a few weeks and there's all these different films and different people sort of communicating. So it's it's cool from that aspect for sure. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you said to me off the, the show, it kind of puts a bit of... Uh, retrospective in how the post-production how you want to handle post-production stuff with your films in the oh, future that was more with um like disconnected seeing it on a big screen but it's it's the same equivalent in terms yeah, well, of how like, people perceive it well yeah. i mean more like in the terms of like how instead of putting films up straight away you're gonna oh, allow yeah, yeah, for yeah. The, the festival breathing time right yeah because i mean x rental has been out for a while crater was sort of been on and off youtube a few times for the last year and a half i think but i deny, I deny this <laughs> but no i mean that's you're it's right. always unlisted that's how i well keep it. yeah exactly it, it depends on what's going on in terms of other and yeah. it is a smart way to do it i, I haven't bothered i've just kind of left x rental on the whole time so the, essentially by tonight there would just be two ways to watch it yeah uh, three if you have a video vimeo link i suppose i don't know but you're right it definitely in terms of how to publish or distribute the films it does it forces you to be like maybe i should take a step back and not because, I mean, when we first put out Cradle, that was a thing. I think we we put it one place, didn't yeah, get in, and, and we it, were just like, oh, well, let's just upload Well, it. it was more like the case of um, we had finished the film and then that festival just perfectly lined up. So that the time to wait was like a week or two. Yeah, exactly. And after we got the, the, the negative response, um, yeah, we just went, oh, I'll just put it up. Because it was, it was honestly, it was just a... a a film I wrote in a day and then we shot in a day and <laughs> then we edited it over a couple of weeks and that was it. And, um, it turned out really well. I mean, it was thought out, like we thought out what we wanted to do and there was definitely, I mean, there was a rough shot list, but most of the time it was just sort of like, okay, well, let's look at the room. Well, I think if the idea is good enough and it's feasible in a day, 
then it, doing it in a day doesn't necessarily affect the product. No. Like no I, I mean, still think it's it a It comes film. back to, we, we've done a couple of films over like a one day shoot and um, it's it's not a bad way to go about it because if you have, you know, a, a good shot list and an intended direction, you can do it quite efficiently. Mm-hmm. But it, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, you take some of the other films we've done, a lot of them just, you know, they start off with basic coverage and then, mm-hmm. okay, we've got the basic coverage. Let's try some of the ambitious stuff now. And, and again, not not a lot of locations, not a lot of actors and actresses. Or, no. So it was it was feasible to do it in such a short. Yeah, time. exactly. I mean, the, the truth is, it doesn't matter the length of cost or production uh, or time you have to plan it or all of that stuff. If you get basic shot coverage in any scene and then build from there, you're always going to set up to get, you know, a good film at worst and a really mm. good film at best and um you know that's definitely something i learned in the last the last year if you don't have basic coverage you're uh you're kind of screwed <laughs> well i mean that's what they you know you would get taught in, in a lot of screen classes yeah, so you, as long as you get your basic and that's to I me mean, like we make fun of it but uh if you do get your your close up your mediums your wides mm. you're pretty safe regardless of what you do after that yeah but even even you watch full million dollar production films and even they don't do that well, so sometimes they do that and then nothing else and they don't know how to edit it. Yeah. So it's not that you're in the safe or the clear, I suppose. This is that from a from what you need to shoot and assuming the stuff you did shoot is good, mm. you should be okay with basic coverage. And then, I mean, it comes back to the, the continuity argument. Some people are obsessed with getting continuity right and then some people just don't care. And most of the time, <laughs> so unless sexy. it's not glaringly <laughs> bad, you kind of miss it unless you're looking for it. Yeah, I've noticed like on some of the more like real I don't want to say professional, but some of the more sets were like the huge numbers and a lot of people meticulously doing this role, this role, this role, this role. Uh, there's a huge thing with continuity. It's a huge deal from shot to shot that everything matches, everything's perfect. And I've never on smaller sets I've never noticed that to be a huge issue. There's plenty of like tiny continuity issues in disconnected. 99% of people never notice them. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that's the thing. It's like, at the end of the day, if your eye's getting distracted somewhere else or the film's actually remotely compelling, then you're not going to be looking for that stuff. It's only when yeah. the film is not got a compelling narrative or... If you're looking around the corners of the screen, you're looking for stuff, you're like, oh, I mean, it goes. you were saying... Well, you your eye's wandering down. away from where it should be wandering, yeah. so... But you were saying you would start watching Cinema Sins again. Yeah, and it's like if their whole job is to look for continuity issues, they're going to find them. Yeah, of course they're going. Of course they're going to have a twenty-minute video that explains. <laughs> oh, in this One frame, thing. the hands up, but in the next frame, the hands not up. You they, know? Need to, they need to chill out, I think. Oh, it's. Sort of. I mean, it's it's how they make money. They get YouTube it's views, true. make money. That's that's their. They used YouTube to do thing. four-minute videos. It was perfect. But um, now it's like, oh, sin, because I don't like the. Well, I think that has half to do with the the YouTube monetization stuff too, right? Because films have mm. to be a certain, uh, videos have to be a certain length now. They can't just be short. They have, have to, to be, be I think, above. I think, I think they have to be above five minutes. Yeah. That's really dumb. Or it's YouTube. Really or they dumb. get fractionalized now if they're below five minutes. Like they get like their monetization cut depending on like the length. It's like regulated now. That's so strange. Yeah. I haven't done YouTube stuff in a long time, so. Yeah, it's not good. It just gets worse and worse from what I hear. But um, yeah, with that on that note, are we ready to move into our film of the week? I sure am, Zeke boy. No Let's dramas. Do it. Our fourteenth, fourteenth director's corner. Yes, fourteenth. What? Thirteenth. Fourteenth. No, it's fourteenth. It's the fourteenth. Yes, it is. I'm d- I'm doing sevens in my head. Now. Yeah, I just uh, do math. It is our fourteenth <laughs> director's corner. We're doing Danny Boyle, 
But Jake, what are we watching? We are watching Train Spotting. Choose life. Choose a job. Choose a career. Choose a family. Choose a big television. You're a quiet, sensitive type. A little bit crazy, a little bit bad. Choose washing machines, cars, compact displays, and dental insurance. You lied on your application. Only to get my foot in the door. What exactly attracts you to the leisure industry? Renton is a drug addict who tries to mend his ways by moving to London and starting life afresh. He, however, is pulled back into the world of addiction by his friends. Choo-choo! As I stated before, this film was directed by Danny Boyle and is our latest Director's Corner voted on by you. The audience. The Cinema Sideshow community. Yeah, I like that. Uh, so, community. Yeah, no, it's true. It kind of uh, runs off pretty well there. So, it's like you were a long-time huge fan of this film. Yes. Yeah, I watched both T1 and T2 yesterday for the first time. Was it a nice was it a nice experience at least like from start so, to sort of back to back? Back to back? Um I I I wish I kind of waited longer in the sense that I first off I didn't know T2 came out so recently. Yes. I always just assume, oh, they're both films in the 90s. So, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And I was so. like, wow, I didn't realize there was such a... And obviously, narratively, there's a reason for the gap. But I just I just didn't know that T2 was such a recent film. And I kind of wish I knew what it felt like to wait that whole time. Yeah, obviously, we're doing train spotting because it's the more critically acclaimed, more positive one of them. And also because it plays into our Cinema Sideshow retrospective. Uh, mm, this went up against film. Jurassic Park and beat it. So yeah, it was close, but it, yeah, one. Um, <laughs> I like how you had to defend that. You're like, yeah, it was close, though. Please. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just couldn't remember. Um, we've done a lot of votes lately. Yeah, but there is yeah, obviously there's a reason for the separation between the two, and um, I can tell you why we're splitting it in two. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, there's a reason for the separation of the two, and uh, I think they said when the second one came out, they actually had the screenplay written in the '90s, but they had to wait the 20 years to oh, okay. make it. Well, I, I did some research with, because I was, there's something that happens in the second one based, because I watched the first one, wrote my notes, took my feelings in, uh, did my research, and then I watched the second one. And what I noticed in the second, I'll get into that later, but the mm-hmm. second one has stuff that was in the first novel that this is based on, written by mm-hmm. uh, even Ivan Welsh, I believe. Yes. So he wrote the sequel novel, which I think... I think it was called Porno in 2002. Yes. And that the second film was based on that second novel from 2002. So it's true they sat in it for a long time. I don't know if they necessarily wrote it in the 90s. I think Boyle came out and said that they had it okay. pretty much the screenplay written, like the idea at least, in their right, head okay. of where it would go. But I don't quote me on that. I imagine he's close with um, with Welsh. And of course, the screenplay, both screenplays were held by uh, John Hodge. So between those three people, I think the story is very sacred. Mm-hmm. Like they really appreciate each other's adaptions of the of that story of Train Spotting. Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely um, I can agree with that. Um, I we're obviously going to have a controversial conversation about T two because I really love T two. Mm. I think I love T two almost as much as the original. You gave them the same rating, I noticed. Okay, so yeah, I think they were fractionalizedly close, in my opinion. Right. Um, and I think I like, I mean, I like T2 for different, I mean, I saw T2 in the cinema too. Okay. Um, but, uh, I think I enjoy the fallout of the two and sort of the, the, the points it's trying to make it, uh, both the films are trying to, to talk about, um, sort of like 
the the dead endness of of like small town culture and how you can kind of get roped into that addiction um on materialism and and you're constantly brought in by it. I, I i think the second one shows uh, a good like contrast of and really explores the fallout of the actions of what happened in the first mm. one and uh, like from all aspects um of how these friends never saw each other after the, the events of the first one and sort of how they've all dealt with the mistakes they made and the losses they had in the first film. Okay. And I feel like, I think would I feel like we're definitely going to have a debate about the second one. Okay. Um I think we'll start at least now just sort of our general impressions on the first one, general thoughts. Well, at least that's going to be a nice <laughs> <laughs> conversation. I mean, Zeke, Zeke's peaked in my letterbox review, so we haven't talked about the films yet. No, nah. but he he has a general idea of what I think of each two individually. Yes. So yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, as as someone who hasn't it's Last Jedi Part Two all over again. <laughs> <laughs> um. So again, I this is the first time I've seen Transpire. I've heard so much hype, especially from you about you know how great this film is, and I watched it last night, and I've seen the opening scene a couple of times. I think in classes and stuff mm. we saw it. But it was the first time I sat down and watched it from start to finish. I loved how tight it was. I loved the, the actual story with, with Renton. Uh, of course, a pre-Star Wars Ewan McGregor, mm-hmm. which was great to see how good he is in this film as well. And just his voiceover and the narrative from his perspective of him trying to get away from that life in the, in the form of his friends that he keeps... They see, it's such a relatable way of explaining drug addiction to someone. Exactly. By putting that addiction in the form of, here are three mates that he just can't lose sort of thing. And I think the film has so much energy because of his voiceover and because of the surrealistic aspects uh, of the film. And they, our thumbnail especially is such a beautiful example of the surrealism cinematography going on here. It's like, yeah. it's such a beautiful package. And it, and it literally, um, in that one scene, which is a, a pretty icon, like iconic scene, mm. um, they really just bridge the, the super highs of, of drug addiction with the insurmountable lows. I mean, the fact that he... <laughs> climbs in, down. He climbs like into a toilet that is one of the most gross toilets you've ever seen <laughs> to get this. <laughs> and awesome. then it transitions into him swimming in this ethereal yeah. sort of ethereal sort of state. Yeah, mm-hmm. where it's like, you know, he's floating. He's unstoppable. And um, they, do, they do a couple of really cool surrealist things in the first and the second one. But... Um, yeah, it's a really, I think that's the best way to sum it up. It's the perfect explanation of how heavy drug addiction works mm. with people and sort of the culture that these types of people were surrounded. Um, and this film came out at a really prominent time because there's a lot of anti-drug campaigns and mm. stuff all across the world. The real fear of the heavier sort of psychedelic and... Wasn't, I guess you would look at it as the 90s being the aftermath of the big coke blowout in the 80s and all that kind of stuff. Well, so it's, it's the it's reaction been, to that. I mean, and if you look at films predominantly in the 80s, there was definitely a lot of drug glorification mm. too. Um, you take a lot of those, I mean, anything that Scorsese did, you know, anything yeah, from like yeah, the yeah. Goodfellas and stuff where it's like they, they, they basically show more of the the highs of, of drug addiction rather than mm. or things like Scarface and stuff like that, where it's a, you know, it's, it's equivalent to things like you said, the Coke blowout, you know, it's a, it's equivalent to money and wealth. You know, these people, they're crazy and they're losing their minds, but at the same time, 
they're wealthy and successful people. Well, it's whereas, interesting because like, if you look at a Scorsese film and yeah. you look at a high character, th- there's none of what's going on in this film where they're kind of visually showing you what it must feel like and why it's an addiction, why Renton wants to do this. Mm-hmm. Then you go into a Scorsese film where, and again, not a knock, this is not what he's trying to do, but he shows such a raw version of that where like, oh, look, he's beating his wife now. Yes. Like, he's insane. He's like going through the toilet and this and that and um, specific, specifically in Goodfellas, but... You're right. In in Scorsese, he's trying to show you like, oh, look how much of an asshole this person's become because of drugs. In this film, they're like, well, drugs. It's an evil, but it's it's an enticing evil that he just can't. Well, it's it's like, a definition of it's escapism. Mm. It's like at the end of the day, the, none of these characters are successful. Predominantly, they're mostly unemployed. The only character of their friend group that has it together, um, we watch over the whole film as his whole experience with drugs leads to you know his descent yeah um and that's such a critical part of the show it's like you know uh, the film because when we start (laughs) three tv show (laughs) well i mean you know we look at the characters like you know sick boy renton and and you know spud and stuff like that they're already well into their drug addictions you know like they've they've relapsed and they've recovered and they've like they've Mm. relapsed and recovered um and it's constantly affected each of their lives and particularly their parents lives whereas you know the cat like the <laughs> i just flash back to like all the the shit flying on the <laughs> in the living room i thought you know what when i watched i thought it was blood i didn't realize oh, really? it, i didn't realize it was poo yeah and i was like oh my god and then i was like oh he just shit himself okay you know and then you got the character of um <laughs> i think it's tommy yeah tommy tommy's like the pure mm. one of them like they've all grown up together and he's the one that stayed clean, but really the the linchpin for him staying clean was having you know his girlfriend around. And after mm. his relationship, because of the actions of his friends that he doesn't know about, you know them stealing that sex tape yeah. that leads to their breakup. You know that leads to that. that he should have been more descent. attentive. He literally asked him, "Hey, can I borrow this?" He should have been more attentive. Yeah, but that's sort of the... <laughs> I blame him. I don't care. No, but that's the thing. Yeah, but yeah. They, they're they aware of it, and I think that's what makes T2 so effective because I don't think their actions are really addressed in the first film. They're addressed in the second film. Like, at least the fallout of their actions, you know? I mean, there's the fallout. I think with the first film... I, I, I hold... Here's the thing, and this is... Uh, I don't want to get into it yet, but this is one of the reasons why I love the first one so much more, is that it's clearly Renton's story. It's clearly his perspective. It's his voiceover. Mm-hmm. So even though we're seeing what's happening to friends around him, when I'm watching, I'm constantly thinking of okay, well, how's Renton going to react to this or that? How's it going to? And like, I still care for the other okay. characters because what's happening to them. But ultimately, and by especially by the end of the film, I'm just like, I just want him to get out, just to get out, please get out. And uh, we jump, we're spo- jumping the spoilers just yet, no. but. Okay, uh, so that was sort of my perspective. Yeah, I, I maybe maybe I've the reason that I you're not wrong when you like we I know we're gonna not talk too much about the second one, but mm. your your lukewarm reception to that film is not ill founded. There is mm. certain certainly some people. I'm that not don't, the only one, right? Yeah, it's definitely it's got the like I wasn't joking. It's got the Last Jedi sort of reception in the sense that some people really like the second one, and some people. Don't care for it. Yeah. I like the exploration of the other characters in the second one. I like how they address actions of their their when they are supplementary characters mm. in the first one, but they do some of them do some very critical things that would set them up for a huge life of where they end up. Mm. And I like that they address that stuff. And I you know, Renton's still I think the the center point of the second one, but it's more 
it's definitely more balanced out, and I like that, I think, because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it becomes less about his personal story and wanting to get out and more just assessing the damage of each of their lives, you know. So I, I think I like that sort of psychological ex like exploration of each character and how the actions of, of the past have rippled into the future. Yeah. My, my Excuse me with the second one is it's not so much narratively I have an issue with. I'm, the reason I talk about perspective and why I didn't, don't think it works in the second one is mostly just to do with the film's pacing and energy. If you get rid of the VO, which the second one does, it just feels like a slower experience. And I don't mind we're following the other characters, but it made me feel like a lost perspective of like, who, who do I grapple onto? It makes... Um, I think you grapple onto Spud really more in the second one. I guess, but Spud's not even in the second one that much. He's, in it, he's, he's pretty critical. He's the first one renting, renting him. Yeah, but he's, he's barely in it for the next hour after that. Because it become it becomes about him and is it Tommy? Oh well, yeah, Sick Boy, yeah. Sick Boy, yeah. It becomes about him and Sick Boy for a lot of it, and then uh, I've got the name here. I'm trying to remember. Is I, I want to call him Big B from Wolf of Oh, Big it's, B, yeah, yeah. It's Big not. B. It's, it's Big B. Big B. That's it's Big B. Yeah, I, 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 Big B just becomes such a villain in that last one, which I get, but no, he's, he's just well. like so unlikable. But I think they explore. I I. No, I, I'm inclined to disagree with you there, sir, but we're not going to... <laughs> I have to do a whole other episode. Well, my, my whole thing with the second one, again, it's, it's not so much the, where the characters... I, it's narratively, I'm like, yeah, this makes sense, and I would want the second one to be about the fallout of Renton's I mean, he went, to, he went to prison because of what Renton did. Yeah, no, I, I get that, but it's like then him being a complete fucking... Wank, I shouldn't swear too much on the show, but like, the way he treats his son for example, and stuff like that, I was just like, ah. Yeah, but that's, that's like probably a ripple effect of how he was treated by his dad. Yeah, and, and then that goes into the other thing. The scene that was in the first novel, but not the book, was when him and Renton bump into his estranged father at the train tracks. And that's where the title initially comes from, because he's like, oh, what are you doing here? Train spotting? That's a line from the book. Mm -hmm. And knowing that, going into the second one and seeing them just wedged in out of nowhere, I'm... so we can have this a redemption with his son that comes out of nowhere, I'm just saying it comes out of nowhere, it sucks, because like, they should have just put that in the first film. It's a tight 90-minute film as it is. Mm. And it's in the f and that's the whole reason kinda, the film's even I kind of like that. its payoff in the later one because it know, comes out of nowhere though. Mm. I don't know. Okay, <laughs> okay. But let's yeah. go back. Let's go back to the first one because clearly yeah, yeah. we're yeah. I, I'm inclined to disagree. I think well, it's built pretty well. Yeah. But well, let's talk about the the direction specifically because it is a director's corner. Yes. So Danny Boyle and like I said to you last week, week. his direction is so uh, maybe not his direction but. The films, each film that he does, and I've seen seven of his films now, they're so tonally different from each other. I have to double check how many I've seen. I think I've seen six. Okay. So. Well, I've seen, I know I've seen Slumdog Millionaire, Steve Jobs, 127 Hours, Train Spotting, one and two. Uh, there's two. 28 others, Days. Uh, 28 Days, and. Oh, and uh, Yesterday. Mm. Which again, th those are such different films. Yeah, I've, I've seen all of those, bar 127 and. Uh, well, you've seen Steve Jobs now. I've seen Steve Jobs, so one twenty-seven. It's the only one out yeah. of those ones I haven't seen. I like, I like it a lot. James oh, James and uh, I, I was meaning to watch Sunshine this week, but I never got around. Yeah, to it. me neither. I didn't have time. Um, but um, so, um, but yeah, that was definitely something we pointed out is how distinct all of his. Like he just goes everywhere, which is good. Yeah, no, I love the uh, variety, and it's like even Scorsese has so many different stories. You can still point to this is his kind of film. He still has several films that are similar in style and tone, and especially someone like Tarantino. But 
what I like, even um, like Noah Bombach and stuff. It's like you, you can point to several different films and be like, they're all from this guy. Now, yeah, someone... Bombach's definitely a good example. Hmm. He does very similar types of films. Yeah, you, it's like you can look at Francis Hard Marriage Story. It's like, well, they're different, but they're the same. Yeah, or Squid in the Whale and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I still got to see that one actually. Hmm. But uh, he actually, uh, so Boyle actually did respond to. I don't know if it was a response to a question or something, but he did point this out himself. Uh, on his Wikipedia page, is like a quote ripped. And he said yep. something like, there is a theme running through all of them, all of my films, and I only just realized this. They're all about someone facing impossible odds and overcoming them. Which I think is pretty true. It's very broad, though. It is a broad... Yeah, I wouldn't call that a theme. But, I mean, it's a theme, but it, it, it's such a general... It's like when you say there's only seven stories in the world. It's, it's as broad as that, I suppose. Yeah. And something like Yesterday... I wouldn't say Yesterday is about a guy... I mean, this quote was probably before I mean, then. Yeah, yesterday is one of those such a lukewarm popcorn time film. It really doesn't offer anything more than how great are the Beatles, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, I, I feel like this, especially the first one. I think Renton trying to overcome his drug addict—that is absolutely someone facing impossible odds. Impossible, absolutely. Especially with all the outside factors affecting. Yeah, yeah. Some dog millionaire. Some dog millionaire. Yes, 127 hours. Yes, but. It's yeah. interesting. That was okay. his I mean, sort it's of probably, I mean, it's a broad, it's broad enough. Mm. Um, I think for, uh, I wouldn't call the Jobs movie him overcoming in a possible yeah, that's a, He never feels mm. like he's, like, against it all. Like, people, like, he you know, it's, a lot of, a lot yeah. of times it's in that movie. It's the impossible odds, that, that part of the sentence. Yeah. That is what sort of separates it. Yes, people overcoming yeah. stuff. <laughs> just stuff in general um, I mean that's narrative that's story right there yeah exactly <laughs> um, that's why I think that's a very broad statement but I like how he he is constantly doing different things mm. like you know when you watch the first 15 minutes of 28 days later it's crazy it's like you, you, you and then you compare that with something like watching yesterday and you're like how is this done by the same person mm. like but even like then I look at someone like Scorsese who did Hugo alongside like with Wall Street like those two were back to back but even still compared to yesterday versus uh, 28 days later I can still see Scorsese in Hugo I can still see him in that yeah. film whereas it's almost like he goes for completely different styles like you look at 28 days later it feels very like a like that sort of Eastern European sort of film house style whereas mm. then if you compare that with something like yesterday it actually feels way more like just it's a very contemporary like Netflix-esque sort yeah. of like, oh, very safe turkey characters and they say um, this and that I don't know and then you look at something like this where it completely morphs these surreal elements in there mm. seamlessly it almost feels like Danny Boyle directs a film because he watches a bunch of other films like it and goes I want to make something like that now and then that's the next yeah. thing he does well that's a sense <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say again that's a sense I got with T2 and why I think when you talk about surrealism elements I think the first one does a way better the first one it feels, you know, when the walls are closing, when the baby's caught, like that feels like authentic horror, but it's all done. It feels like it's done in camera. It feels authentic. It mm. reminds me a bit of Nightmare on Elm Street. And then with T2, it's like, oh, he just watched an Adam McKay film. Now there's like little lights coming up on the building. Oh, here's a joke about Raging Spud. It's just like, it didn't flow nearly as well in the second one. Okay. So that was another sort of directorial thing I had where you're right. It feels like he kind of, and he said, he said, I wanted to make T2 feel different from the first. But I don't, I don't know if it should have felt different in that way, where it does. Okay. It feels like Adam McKay, like, oh, let's do Vice, and it's a lot of random. I mean, I don't think it was on the same level as Adam Adam McKay. He's I not. 
um, like the I guess Soderberg I do actually experiment. I really do see what you you're pointing out though. Mm. Um, I think I liked that style, so maybe that's maybe yeah. That's just uh, me. You see, okay, here's the thing. T two isn't a bad film. I think it's a bad sequel. At least, not narratively, but mm-hmm. thematically and cinema, from a cinema cinema point of view. I think I give a lot of passes because I think this is one of the strongest casts mm-hmm. to... It's a great work. cast, it's, yeah. And the writing has always been really... Even in both films, it's it's so compelling and, and nice. Like, it's so compelling in the sense that you do want... Yeah, like you said, like that. You, when, when Renton's getting away and the mm. music starts to pick up, you're like, oh, shit. Like, <laughs> you get that real, like... <laughs> yeah. Oh, moment and i think in the the second one it's it's i like sort of it's it's got kind of a meta narrative going to i mean when all of these guys were first in train spotting not a lot of them were very big famous actors right and when you make a film 25 years out or you know 22 23 years mm. after it's sort of weird you know you look at all the things that Hugh McGregor did in that those two decades, and then you look at some of the other ones who are a bit more quietly in the sort of you know they went off and did a couple of indie films here or there, but they mo- didn't do Star Wars. <laughs> no, they didn't do Star Wars. So. It reminded me a bit of Doctor Sleep, seeing like an older, even though he obviously Hugh McGregor's not in uh, Shining, yeah, but he's meant to be playing an older established character with sort of a drug addiction. So, so it just reminded me of that. I was like, oh, it's like Doctor Sleep. <laughs> did you enjoy T two more than it too? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> okay. Good. Thank uh, God. <laughs> at least, like I said, T two is not a bad film. I I just I hate how disconnected it feels from the first in so many okay. thematical direction directorial ways. Uh, but narratively, I'm um, like I said, if I if there was to be a sequel, I want it to be Renton the fallout of Renton's actions. It's exactly what the second one is. Mm. So I'm glad it does that. And um, again, I don't I don't dislike the film i just have a i i had too many issues with it that i was like well i can't really say that i really love this film like the first one okay well that's, that's fair. sort of my stance there um so you know tying it back to the first one mm. i think one of the strongest points that needs to be addressed is the soundtrack oh uh, my god yeah and yeah. it's funny because i actually i think uh while i was studying here i did write a paper on the soundtrack here um so it ended up being the sixth that. most successful cinematic, like this. It's the sixth best, I think it is. Uh, like on a list, the sixth mm. best uh, cin- cinema soundtrack of all time. I buy uh, it. It's awesome. It's so good. And it's it, yeah. It's easily one of, if not probably the best strength of the film. It's the way that. You know, it comes back from the the first step of rent, like running step from Renton, and then Iggy Pop's "Lust for Life" starts. You know, it's those <laughs> drums just pounding as he's sprinting down the street. And I love even the scene, or a couple of scenes after that, when he's the first time we see him trying to. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go cold turkey. I'm gonna relax, mm. and they play Carmen over that, and it's like it's just, it's perfect. Yeah, yeah. Well, you got like like when they're all having sex and there's atomic playing. Oh, that scene's fucking awesome. Um, I love it so much. Uh, it's just it, <laughs> everything about it. It's it, it's an impeccable choice of soundtrack, and I think mm. that's why everyone got so excited when Danny Boyle was directing a film about it, like a guy who a discovers musician. the Beatles. Yep, well, yep, yeah, yep, the yep. Beatles parody because it was like, holy crap, you're giving Danny Boyle Beatles music. Like he's gonna nail it. And I mean, yeah. to be fair, I think he did choose the I mean, right musically, songs. So yeah. It's- that's not any issue I have. But it's like, what music. a surprise. Beatles songs are good in movies. <laughs> um, <laughs> who would have thunk it? Who would have thunk it? Um, um, no, I absolutely love it. And the, the other cue I love so much. And it, it's funny. I think part of it, it reminded me of that PlayStation ad they did in 2013 where they played The Perfect Day. 
to like, yes. people in the costumes playing the games or whatever. But like the just the use of that song when he's being taken to the hospital is like it's so perfect. It's, it's perfect. Um, there was like one scene in a film I would want to homage. It's that scene. Oh my god! Yeah, without a doubt. And the carpet um, again, him sinking in. It's like I, I know I've seen that before, but I'm I'm sure that was a homage to this film specifically. Oh yeah, it would have absolutely been. Yeah, like that. Uh, um, because it's it's unreal that 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 scene. You just feel like, wow, what a fantastic like. Mm. And I I think it's it's tough to explain. I mean, it's been one of those things I've always wanted to buy. A, I think you can buy the soundtrack on vinyl. So I've oh, I'm sure. It. I mean, it's on Spotify. It's like its own soundtrack. I have it on Spotify. Yeah. Nice. So, um, but it's it's one of the strongest elements of. Definitely the first film. I I would actually say that's probably one of the takeaways. I don't particularly remember any of the music from the second film, so you might have me there. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't recall anything. N- none of the standouts that we were talking about. Yes, um, about the first one for sure. I like the obsession with, uh, you know, to add to this whole like they're loser characters. They're into Iggy Pop, who was more famous in the eighties. Yeah, but they're yeah. all obsessed with Iggy Pop. Well, that, the characters make jokes about it. Yes, like I'll oh, get over it sort of thing. What I love about that, uh, specifically Sick Boy and, and um, Renton talking about, it it felt, and this is the thing, we're doing this as a representation of 90s films. Yes. I mean, this is one of the perfect examples for that because you look at other Miramax 90s films, like Pulp Fiction, like Clerks, like these films where so much of the dialogue is characters having relatable conversations, mm-hmm. talking about musicians or other movies or other things, and the fact that there's so many VHS tapes just in the sets of all of these films. And I saw a Robocop, a VHS in one of the scenes like in the background I was like this is awesome yeah. and it feels like it's just adding to that the Miramax vibe whom of course now is sort of the A24 of the 90s and this film wouldn't exist without Miramax just no. like many of the films they produced wouldn't exist and otherwise I, I think it comes back to it's it's also like you know when you think of 90s you think of grunge you think of like rebellion mm-hmm. against yep. the system and it's like everything about this film is just a quintessential 90s film you know, you, stick you, it to the man. Stick it, stick it <laughs> to the man, and the man's always the. You know, it comes back to the mantra of the film. You know, the whole choose life and choosing. You know, it's the materialistic, yeah, uh, the lifestyle, and you know, eventually it goes from him rebelling it to embracing it to rebelling against it mm. to finally embracing it because essentially it, it's what will get him out of the life that he's in. I just so, want to say, to follow up from last week, I just got another email about graduation. No, that's funny. Bloody, you probably got one too, actually. Probably, probably did. <laughs> just to follow up from last week, again, while we're recording. I th- um, no, I think you're absolutely spot on the, the money there. And I, I loved um, Edinburgh, sort of economically depressed 90s. I'm guessing 90s, because the book takes was released in the 90s as well. Yeah, I think it's in Edinburgh, yeah. Yeah, well, just the fact that it takes place in the 90s, I'm assuming. Yeah. But yeah. um, it's a great backdrop, and it kind of leads into the the robbery that they do. And it's yes, like, I could see them living somewhere else where they wouldn't have done that. Well, example. it sort of comes back to like places like Edinburgh, which probably didn't have a lot of international films coming out of it at the time. Mm. Um, so for us, you know, places like oh the 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 beautiful Scottish Isles, it's like oh mm. we'd love to go there for a holiday, and it's like well you see to- more of that in the second one, the vistas and the mountains and. Yeah, but it, it, it definitely looks too beautiful. It, it comes, but it comes back to how much they hate being there. Yep. Uh, it always comes back to <laughs> oh, look at this beautiful backdrop that we've grew up in, and we absolutely hate living here. And it's sort of that, and I think that reflects in both films where it's like mm. the fact they all end up back there is kind of a part of the. the yeah, no, joke. I like that. I like that aspect. 
I was like, it makes sense. I mean, that felt like it chapter two in a way. Yeah. Well, like the, the, the point in their lives years down the track when they're all convenient. Yeah, but oh, we've we've seen plenty of small town America sort of, oh, there's That's nothing true. here stories. We don't see many coming out of places like Edinburgh and stuff like that. And um, I mean, it comes back to uh, it's little, it's that scene when Tommy takes them out to this beautiful vista mm. and they're all just like, this is fucking stupid. <laughs> 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 Which is sort of very similar to like where we live in Perth, where it's like, you can go and get some beautiful vistas two hours down south, but it's worth, is it worth yeah, driving I, two yeah, hours you know, down south? Well, I've always said, I've always said, I always thought that Fremantle and, and Perth and the, our general locale, I've always, a lot. I was like, there's plenty to shoot here. I've always been a big fan of that. No, but, I, I, <laughs> you know, but I understand a lot of people around me and it's, it's that joke of, oh, I'm going to move to Melbourne. And I always make that joke because that's what everyone says. I'm yeah. moving to Melbourne. And it never happens, of course. Actually, one time. I've literally seen it happen at once. And, of course, it was one of the actresses I was working with. And I was like, yeah. couldn't it have been someone I don't care about that moved <laughs> away from me? Um, no, but you're right. It's like, That's such a universal feeling of, yeah. of home being home, but you don't want it to be home. And you, you're stuck with it in a way. No, yeah, and you never get away from it. And, and it just happens of... to be a drug field. Well, I was going to say, that's what ties into the addiction sort of mm. subtext, though. Is it's everything about his life that he doesn't want anymore, which leads to him penal- you know, to ultimately running away from it. Not combating it or trying to overcome it, but... Escaping, running away yeah. from it and that's what i think makes the sequel ideology better i think because it's like he ended up coming back to it i don't anyway. mind that the sequel exists like, again narratively i'm it makes sense mm-hmm. that that that's where the story goes i mean if, if i read the two novels back to back i might actually like the second one a lot more mm-hmm. just reading its story yeah as opposed okay. to the way that that Boyle directed it and it just felt so inconsistent from that point but um i think everything about the first one's pretty spot on per- actually there's, there's one thing there's one thing that was like oh this felt like a t2 moment that's in the first one okay i'll talk to you about it is when they're in the bar and i think it's spud and sick boy i think it's those two and they're talking about the girlfriends but they got the subtitles so you can read oh, over yeah. and i was like i it's a creative choice of course because like well, they're talking about it. iggy pop and then the, the girl like the girlfriend dynamic is that the yeah 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 and then the girls come up and they're like, what are you talking about? Football. And then yeah, they're yeah, like, yeah. what are you talking about? I, lo- like, I love that. I just don't know why they f- were like, oh, let's mix the sound really loud. So you need something. I mean, I didn't know if I needed the subtitles. It helped. I think it's just course. letting, like, it's just the, the nightclub dynamic. You know, they're at a nightclub at that point. I suppose. They're not at a pub. It, they're at a, a dance dance club. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely not sitting there being like, oh, they silly buggers. They recorded the sound. I, like, I know they did it on purpose. I just yeah. don't know. It. I don't know why it was. I don't know was, why that's bothering you. <laughs> I don't know. It just it, well, so sometimes I wish that nightclub did, scenes would have subtitles. It didn't bother me at first because like oh, okay, it's interesting choice. But now that I've seen the second one, and I was like, okay, I've distinguished what I don't like and do like about these two films. Okay. And I was like, that's like the only thing in the first one that I would like. Why did they do that? Yeah, they needed to put them on the left and the right hand of screen like an American <laughs> Pie. <laughs> the American Pie, uh, the contort. That would have fixed everything. Fixed there. everything. <laughs> but um, and another thing I noticed, which was quite funny, it was it wasn't like a like a, a thing. It was just something I amu- amused myself with in my own head. Yeah. Was when he um pulls out the boot and it's got like I think it's like heroin or something in the shoe. Yes. Within it, it just reminded me of Maxwell Smart and and get smart when he uses the phone to call people. I was like, I, that's a different use of that shoe. <laughs> I think it just comes back to the critique that 
the big things I like about the story is how all these characters criticize society, yet they're not productive members of society. Mm. So it sort of leads That's to true. that um, contradiction in their their mentality. The whole thing is that it's like, oh, choose materialism, but at the same time, they rely on materialism in order to operate. So it's sort of that, like that, ex- yeah. like, and every time that's sort of the argument I always hear people are like, oh, capitalism's evil. Oh, it's Jake's capitalist corner. <laughs> I'm sorry, but if you're going to tweet that on your iPhone, stop tweeting. Yeah, just saying. But no, you're right. There, there is a bit of a contradiction there. Well, the fact that they do nothing but sit in the park and with a BB gun and shoot people, like. <laughs> They're not productive. They, right, yeah. um, and honestly, well, renting, they neglect renting. any responsibilities they have, which mm. obviously is very intrinsical to the plot involving uh, Sick Boy and uh, his girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. Or lady friend, whom uh, something happens. But between the two films, he always has questionable lady films, uh, friends. He does. Will they, won't they sort of situation? Yeah. Um, yeah. Can we... Are we ready to jump oh, into yeah, spoilers? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think cool. we're well cool. on spoilers now, yeah, for sure. Um, obviously, the one of the most horrifying images I think I've ever seen in a film oh, is God. in this film. Yeah. And it really does sort of... You know, it comes back to, you know, early in the show, I'm talking about the psychedelic documentary and I'm saying I didn't know it was necessarily glorifying psychedelics or, or like, talking, like, promoting you don't take them. Did you get a similar feeling here at first? I think at first you definitely get the... I mean, the whole point with the Iggy Pop playing and Mm -hmm. being like, oh, instead of choosing all of those things that the man tells you to choose, choose heroin because it's it's this trip. You know, it comes back to that that shot where it's shot down the hallway and Hugh McGregor's like falling as the, the, the... the builder from Iggy Pop's Lost for Life is building, and it's like you know he's doing oh, a very that slow fallback when he's standing. Yeah. up. oh, that's a and it's and a very I'll, romanticized sort and, of. And like, when he does it in the second one, I was like, "Fuck yeah, that's cool." Yeah, when he does it at the end, of, yeah, yeah. It's like it's trying to romanticize sort of the thing, mm-hmm. and um, you know, obviously. So at first, it's sort of like, oh, these guys seem to be having it reasonably together. You know, like they're they're doing their stuff. They're not being productive members mm. of society. They're fucking around with cent- the Centrelink equivalent in Scotland, <laughs> um, like the social services. Uh, you know, they're they're basically just oh, we're getting clean, and when they don't get clean, they're like, eh, whatever. Like yeah. they they're very they're very much showing they have no responsibilities and they don't care that they don't have responsibilities. But mm. then it comes to sort of a screeching halt at about 45 minutes Well, they, in. They, they pepper shots in every now and then of this baby crawling around. Yes. Uh, it's, um, so they set it up really Because they obviously all get high in this kind of ghetto house. There's even a crib for the yeah. baby <laughs> in the house. Um, and it's very much established that uh, one of the female ensemble cast members, it's her baby, um, we don't really know the father until... Until the second one, I got... Well, I... no, you definitely know in the first one. Okay. For a minute, I thought it was Renton's kid. Well, the you're, you're meant to kind of leave yep. guessing. There's definitely sort of like this sort of free-flowing sexuality in the house. It doesn't feel like... Right, there's... they're like kissing each other and stuff. Yeah, there, like there's, the there's not... It's very hippie. Mm. So, but you definitely know because there is a bit of narration that comes through when obviously the baby is neglected for multiple days and dies and it's one of the most that shot is fucking horrifying yeah oh um and then uh, i think renton says he says at that moment i realized who the father was and it cuts to a shot of sick boy okay um see that kind of went over my head the reaction uh the johnny lee miller who i have not i can't even imagine i can't even think of any other films i've seen him in i said he was in hackers oh that's funny um (laughs) literally last week when i was talking about that on the show um but his most famous films are, are the two Trainspotting films and Hackers. So there you go. 
But Perfect. his acting in that scene is like just the horror mm. and it's just all there. And I think that's the moment where it's like Boyle no longer romanticizing the drugs. It's now. And then it starts to turn like, from Here are the point. consequences, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it comes back to, you know, in that scene where after Renton is admitted to hospital and his parents take him home, he has to stay in his room in isolation. Uh, <laughs> and obviously... Can I spoil what the good... Uh... Actually, wait, no, that that wasn't even my, my good social... We'll get to that. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that would that should be. Uh, that should be the good one. I and got he has to stay one, in his room for, I think, for a week. And yeah, basically, I love just that the, the horrifying so much, yeah. trying to go cold turkey sort of stuff with the baby crawling on the roof. Oh my god, it's oh, it's, it's so actual good. nightmare fuel. You know, that's the funny. The funny thing is, Jake, it's like horror is not putting up the mixer to a hundred mm. and jump scaring us like in it chapter two. Oh, isn't it? Um, I thought it was. Yeah, it's visual horror. It's things mm. like you know, in John Carpenter's The Thing, you know, having that stuff where it's like literal, like oh my god, Exorcist, Rosemary's Baby, like stuff that just peels your skin from underneath. Like seeing a dead baby on film that was horrifying. Mm. It wasn't a ho- this film is not a horror film, but it has horror elements in yep. it, and it should because you know, with every good trip, with every you know, the ethereal swimming underwater and celebrating and having this the cool rock punk rebellious music playing while you're tripping balls <laughs> yeah. needs to be contrasted with the other side. That's you know? actually a really good point. I didn't think of too much until you just brought it up, is the number of bad trips he has in this film multiple times. Like that's actually awesome. Yeah. That he's not just having a good trip and then he just has one bad one at the end of it. It's like no, it's like it's constant roller coaster up, down, up, down, up, yeah. down. You yeah, it's see it. it's not it's it's very much like Flip, flip a coin and see what you get, exactly, basically. Yeah. You know, the scene that's one of the most iconic scenes of the film, you know, in the, the Lou Reed perfect day scene, he's going to the emergency room. Yeah, immediately. And while this <laughs> film about, oh, it's a perfect day. Everything's great. Mm. And it's like, you know, but it's like the whole sequence is literally this guy is about to die and he's being admitted to hospital. I lo- I, what I love about the scene too is how his eyes are closed physically, but through the way it's shot and you have the you have the the corners of the blankets as like a vintage in the camera and it's like this is his perspective and we understand that he sees this i want to high five whoever came up with that idea (laughs) brilliant idea to have that yeah no it's it's excellent and it's and of course it's easy to visualize when the camera zooms back out like okay that's it his trip is maybe not over but like he's back yes in the real world and it's so good it's so good yeah like uh, it's a perfect visual storytelling no dialogue, just mm. the music. The two strengths of the film, I think, some of the camera work and and the the audio track for sure. Yeah. No, I love I love the camera. It's, uh, sometimes you get like a weird, like overly Dutch tilt, like mm. right at the end when Renson's like finally running away and the camera's like on like a ninety degree mm. angle. And it's like uh, okay, but like it's really well shot though. It's and and you're right, the grit of it, which I, again is something I felt like. The second one has weird color grading that threw me off, but like the grid of the first one is so 90s. It's so identifiable when oh, that yeah, film sure. came out. For sure. And, uh, uh, do you have anything that. else you'd like to... Uh, let's see. I, w- I want to talk a bit about... Because this isn't necessarily a highlight scene, but it is a scene I noticed for its editing, specifically, is Spud's interview early in the film and how mm-hmm. I love the way it's edited where he's sort of sprouting and talking unstoppable and how it very much breaks the 30 degree rule in editing where it just kind of cuts in mm-hmm. it punches in then it cuts back and it cuts in and it cuts out again and i was like i really like the use of that human Bre- hume hewen bremer or ewen bremer 
is one of the best parts of both films. Mm-hmm. Spud is, uh, I think that's why I, I really like Spud in the second one because he's just sort of, he's just, I mean, the well, that's whole, my, I think he's underused. It's not that he's not in it much, he's underused. I wanted more of Spud in the second yeah, one. That's fair. That's fair. But yeah, yeah, he, ends up being, <laughs> he ends up being the, uh, the one that gets out though. Really? Yeah, and he becomes sort of the right. Oh yeah, well he even in the end of the first one, which we haven't talked about much, the ending yet. He's obviously he's the one that gets a share of the money. Yeah, I think it is the four grand. Yes, like specific or the four. Was well, sixteen? He gets yeah four thousand of it, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, his cut, whatever his cut was going to yes, be, he, he gets, gets it. This. And of course, sick boy gets his with no interest, which was a fair point mm-hmm. when he's 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 like with no interest, with no. Interest. I was like, that's fair enough. <laughs> he should have got some interest in twenty years, but I do like it. Um, well, I posed a question in my notes. Okay. About the ending and because like when I was especially that final bar scene uh when when uh begby's snapping Begbie, like, yeah, he's like, it's one of my favorite things it's one of the f- scenes that doesn't get talked about enough and it's like that's why i'm curious when you're like oh he's just a really bad guy in the second one i i don't i think he's completely justified in every we we spend the whole first movie showing mm. how short a fuse he's got like his opening scene is him glassing someone i'm pretty <laughs> sure so <laughs> oh, oh i mean like, i love the blood well, in one face of the best things is that like... opening montage when he's running through the street and they they cut to the soccer game and each mm, character okay, yeah. acts as if they would in that soccer game begby goes and slide tackles and knocks someone out and then like <laughs> sick you know spud gets hit in the nuts like it's like they all get their character moments in that montage and it comes insta- with the title isn't it yeah and it instantly two. shows what each character would do mm-hmm and what they're like before we've even talked to them. And I love that. Like, it's like character profile and he didn't have to say a word. Yeah. I would love to rewatch the first like 20 minutes of the film because for me, and this is just any film when I watch it, mm-hmm. usually that stuff goes, when, when there's too many characters introduced at once, like it, it's a lot for me to be like, okay, this, 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 this. Um, but to the film's credit, I do distinctly know all four characters very well. After yeah. watching the first and yeah. second film, yeah, so right. I'd love to go back and, like, to your watch, point, yeah, watch watch that that soccer game they're all playing together, and yeah. you'll see each of their freeze frame actions perfectly speaks to the type of character they are going That's to awesome, be for the yeah. next ninety minutes, and I th- I think that that just that pure like evil that um, Begby has in that last scene, and but yeah. it but what it is is it's trying to validate the threat of the person that he is. He, as an antagonist, he works in the story. He is yeah. threatening, he is scary. But when he not... finds Renton in the bathroom in the second film, mm. I love that shot. That's a brilliant <laughs> that shot. one of the scariest moments. That's odd, especially when you're like, oh, he's going to leave. Oh, they both, no, no. Like Robert oh, Carlyle is uh, the actor who plays Begbie and he's one of the best parts of it. Because... I'll, gi- I'll give you that. I will take away my complaint as him being like, he's in overly um... antagonist. Like, I'll get... That's fine. That's fine. Which I'll one's he in? He's in one of those zombie films too. Um, 28, oh, what, 28 weeks later? Did, Which is the one with... Did Boyle direct the second... The weeks later? No. I don't think he did. No. Which is weird, because I read that he was interested in doing a sequel to it. But I don't think he ended up being the one to do the sequel. He's the it's one in... He's in weeks. No, it's done by Jean-Carlos Fresdelino. But he is in it. Jean-Carlos. He plays Don. Oh, well, there you go. I remember that. That's, I think, one of the first times I ever saw him in a film outside of Transporting. Yeah. It's like, oh. Well, I know, I know um, Ewan McGregor's in a film... Of of Boyle's before Transpotting. I think this is his second or third film he did. Mm. And I know Ewan McGregor was in his director. Actually, yeah. Are you able to pull that up? I have a quick peruse for you. Yeah, because I'm 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 positive this isn't his directorial debut. But it's definitely it's like when we did Pop Fiction. Like it's not his first, but it's one of his first. Um, but yeah, it's the no. breakthrough one. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I I think he made a name for himself. Absolutely. And it's interesting we talked about his directorial 
style being so varied tonally. I also found out that he was the artistic director for the Isles of Wonder opening ceremony for the 2012 Summer Olympics. Mm-hmm. So he's not only just a film director, he's a director of like theater, essentially, or whatever the that ceremony was. I guess it was, it was basically theater, organizing how that was uh, shown, I suppose. So from what I'm saying here, he did quite a few uh, 60, 60 uh, 50 minute films from okay. like the 19... 19- 87 is the earliest dated on Letterbox, but uh, interesting. I'll have to pull up the um Wikipedia because they're good with like doing it in grids. And I think that's... Hugh McGregor was in a 94 film called Shallow Grave done by him. Oh, yeah, that would, yeah, so that I would think be, that was that's... his directorial debut, excluding the 50 minute films. Yes, now, which that is one looks, I might that one's the only one that looks like it's got, yeah. That one gotcha. looks like his feature debut. So yeah, it's early career, obviously. So. Yeah, it's definitely sort of in the line in the line of what we usually do for directors' class. Yeah. But, I, uh, I mean that's that's one of but like yeah the, the Begbie character I, I think I like because I mean you may not like that you may feel like the, the I'm happy shoehorn... to give, I'm happy to give you that or oh, I I still don't like the shoehorning of the dad scene because because in the novel it was in the first one and they just cut it in the first film. I so. think that was in. Intended though, I'm sure it was intended. I just don't like the way they did it. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it, it's sort of interesting how they don't really touch on too many of the the family dynamics. They tap they tap on to Renton's family. Renton's diet. for sure. Um, um, who was it? Who crapped himself? Was that Spud? Spud. Yeah. yeah, a little bit of that and a little. Oh my god, we haven't even talked about um. Renton's sexual encounter and he finds out it's a schoolgirl. <laughs> that was a big shock. That was the, awesome. But that's just adding to their sort of lose... Like, they're trying to... Like, it always adds to their kind of contradictory characters that you get in the first 20 minutes that they they feel like they're like these cool, rebellious, anarchist characters, mm. but really they're just a bunch of losers. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that scene where they're all trying to get laid is, like, so perfect because even, even those who have girlfriends, kind of, yeah, like, they're still... Have their own like little. It's not just like a normal night. They all they have an equally awkward encounter as well as the people who just met. The yeah, women and they're trying the fact to sleep that, that, that Renton yeah. can only sleep with an underage girl, um, who he ends up formulating like a weird pen pal relationship with. Is she the lawyer in the second? Yes, movie? I thought because she makes that crack about she looks too young. Well, she's like, too young. That's her. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say it's a crack. It's more like a reflection line, sort of like. I think it's a little negative. It's a little. Well, it's sort yeah. of saying the fact that he hasn't matured or grown as a person. Well, exactly, and he's, yeah. he's got a circular lifestyle. The fact that he's pursuing this Slovakian, I think she is. She's See, like at this Eastern point, European yeah. girl. Yeah. At this point, I didn't realize that he was going to try and sleep with her. I should have known better. <laughs> yeah. It sort of adds to that kind of like they like their group dynamic is kind of incestuous, mm. which is what makes the like the reveal of the father of the the kid in the first one such a. A surprise, yeah, exactly. Because you don't actually know up until that point. There's no clear to find. Oh, that's the dad. Like we until the baby's dead. Yeah. So, um, but to go to go back to that question, I I don't. I thought I had answered, and I realized no. Well, at least asked it was his final decision at the end to you know we get to that bar. I mean that was the scene for me where I was like, okay, Renton, get out of there. Like I was sort Mm. of going back and forth of like, oh well, you know he 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 gave an investment of two thousand. Was it euro or pounds or? For uh, to get the drug deal going when they initially get they eventually get to sixteen thousand. Yeah, it ends up being yeah. It's it's 
because they take it out of his apartment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my my thing was like, okay, he can play the smart and still get the four. He's still making a profit from this transaction. But then, as soon as that happens in the bar, when he starts attacking people, that was my turn of okay, you need to take well, it and get it. It's the friendship it toxicity. All. It's like mm. you're loyal to your friends that you grow up with, even if they may not be the best for you. Mm. And I always really liked that that dynamic because I did have. We've all probably had friends, maybe not to the same. Oh, I've extent. never had friends that long. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay, I get you. Though. Okay, maybe not to the same extent of like none of my friends are heroin addicts, but I yeah, <laughs> the 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 base ideology is yeah, you have toxic friends and you just make allowances for them. The fact that he hates Begbie, but he lets Begbie room with him. Yeah. When he has a job. Or reluctantly. I was like, "Oh, get out of there, mate." What but that's doing? what I'm but that's yeah, the thing, yeah. that's the yeah, dynamic of yeah. the friends. It's like, you know, you just you can't pick your childhood friends. They're just your childhood friends. They even you can let them go. Hmm. But as the second film teaches you, you can't escape them. Yeah, like, well, your past comes back to haunt you. Yeah. Even if you choose life. But um, no, I, I think my whole thing with that was I was so... When, when he does make that choice and he smartly waits until they're all asleep and then takes on... And of course, Spud sees it, but outside of that, mm. he kind of gets away with it and he gets all the money and... Well, he, until the second Eventually. <laughs> 20 years. <laughs> then he has a heart attack on a treadmill. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, yeah. Sort of the... The uh, there was definitely like an uh, like a a fallout, and I love that mm. they always address the fallout. I think that's what I like from it. But do you want to move into um yeah that's highlight scene. Highlight scene. We probably talked about them. I would. I mean, I'm gonna I'd, avoid. Yeah, I've, yeah. I'm gonna avoid the ones that you probably think. Um, well, I'll just say mine real quick. That it has to be that first hint of surrealism when he climbs into the toilet because as someone who didn't didn't see the iconography prior. That was a surprise to me. And like, oh my God, look how deep. Whoa. And that, that suddenly, re- like, oh wow, he's so deep in that it's like not even real anymore. Mm. And that that was just a great moment for me. And I was like, I love that. And again, with the blanket, it ties into that surrealism aspect. But that, that would easily be my highlight scene in the film. Yeah, I, I definitely say that that last sequence with the bar with Begbie is one of, the, mm. one of my favorite parts because it really... You know, he's always been a threatening character, but he's never been threatening to his friends, and that sort right. of adds. He's never that. been a danger within. The and they are almost they acknowledge that they they sort of are like, oh, he's a he's a bit of a tool, but he's never really a tool to like he's a tool to us, but he's never a danger to us mm. up until that point. It comes back to things like when he's in the bar and he drinks his beer and he throws it over the balcony and glasses oh, someone. So but then, the blood instead of apologising, he goes down and beats the crap out of him. He's like, who did that? <laughs> yeah. So, it, it's sort of like, they always acknowledge that he is a threat, but he's never yeah. a threat to them, so they never have cared yeah. before. But It's a great turning point, for sure. Yeah, when he starts to threaten their livelihood, then Renton decides to act. But he doesn't, he still really, he acts selfishly. Mm. I mean, he's not acting, you know, with the exception of sort of the spud handout on the side and eventually giving sick boy with no interest um, his money. <laughs> That's great. Um, he basically leaves them to burn. Yeah. And get arrested. Um, the thing is, I'm so I'm so with Renton at this point at the end of the first film that I'm glad that he screws his friends over. But it's I'm it's glad good, he does it. It's good that. Um, I do like that scene though when he's about to leave though, and he and he kind of looks over to see Spud, and Spud's definitely got that. He's got that such a cute sort of like mm-hmm. miss, yeah. But it's yeah, you, you're kind of like oh, <laughs> it's <laughs> that sort of last minute of like yeah, that last minute of friend regret where you're like oh, should well, I do when, this? When I saw that, I didn't, I not that I didn't feel bad, but I I knew he wouldn't say anything. Yeah, and he never does. No, 
they always find out through other means or whatever. And I think, but uh, I like how the first film f- finishes, but I'm I'm glad the second film addresses. Mm. Yeah, like I said, I'm, the second that that was the only way they can continue it in my mind, narratively speaking. Yeah. So I I don't um, mind that the second one exists, and I like that. I like the very lack of like the romantic lack of romantic portrayal of all all four of the remaining characters in the second film mm. that their like their lives ranged from working out none of them ended up rich millionaires ended up you know the funny thing is like like you look at things like it chapter two all six characters ended up being financially successful in one way or another <laughs> or really success they had this ptsd as a kid they all ended up fine none of them ended up especially the fat boy yeah he ended up the not only being a, a critic like this hugely renowned architect internationally renowned architect he ended up being super attractive like impossibly attractive at yeah. that point <laughs> you know bev ends up being this really famous fashion designer one of them ends up in hollywood writing scripts the other two seem to be wealthy no matter what they may not have a super successful career but they've Stephen got really king just completely yeah unattached to okay them. but I, I mean you could argue yeah okay cool uh hey i'm the first person to say stray away from his stuff if you're gonna make that sequel from stray away from his stuff, yeah. do do what you want. I don't know. But um, definitely, I like how these guys that they all address the fact that some of them had kids, but they don't see their kids anymore, or they've been right. divorced. Oh, we catch up regularly every ten years. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like the, the they, and then people like Spud who have actually developed relatively healthy relationship, and it mm. it's out of their control of some of the, their past actions affecting them, and I think that that's really kind of cool that. You take four characters that are... They're not all rock bottom, but they're definitely not far off it. They're not, yeah. <laughs> they're not They're not so successful in a way. They're, they're not successful enough to avoid... Treading water. Yeah, well, the fact... I mean, Renton says it, and this is the second film again, where he says, he's like, oh, I, the sad thing is I can't think of anything better than to run this, this scam, essentially, yeah. with his mate. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, um, sums up. yeah, I guess it's our... Do you want to, yeah. Well, I got um, I got my bad and good social distancing. Oh, if I forget. Thing. I'm so sorry. That's okay. <laughs> it's a good one. How long do we run these for? Oh uh, man. Oh what? Until everything's normal. Yeah, which will be never. Um, <laughs> so my, I mean, I said it before that mine wasn't even rent and lying alone in bed. Although that is a good one. And the parents come in from a safe distance, mm-hmm. give them food. Uh, my other one was Spud's the first half of his interview. Because he does eventually go up and start kissing, uh, t- uh, yes, shaking their hands. But before that, there's a nice distance between the two. Well, I don't know. No, that that's good. It. But um, I'll I've... give it to you now. But this is a very hard film to find a good, <laughs> good example in. Of social distancing. Yeah. <laughs> there's very few. Uh, I think I used up both. I'm they're sorry. shooting people with BB guns across the park. <laughs> but I guess they're right next to each other, so it doesn't help. Oh, there's enough. It's public space. There I was mean, some they, good spacing. They lived. Everyone. They all lived in the same. Yeah. How sort of at that point do they? How long are you going to commit to these good and bad I, I don't know. <laughs> it's not hard to just find good ones. Um, there were bad ones galore. Um, I wrote down the pub. Yeah, the pub easily. I definitely wrote the toilet, but that's just like bad in any. That's scenario. bad hygiene. <laughs> Sharing drugs or, or yeah, I don't know. So uh, I guess that's our review of well, our Train director's spotting. corner for Danny Ball and our review of Train Spotting. Currently out in wide release on Netflix, it is. 
I'm pretty sure. No, well, here's the weird thing. The, the first one's on Stan and the second one's on Netflix. There so you go. hopefully you have both, otherwise you're screwed. Because my mum was asking, she's never seen it, and we only have access to Netflix on our on our TV. Mm-hmm. And I explained, I was like, well, only the second one's on Netflix, so you have to get Stan and the... the t- it, it's... It was a weird choice. Well, it's... I mean, yeah, Trainspotting is out and wide release too, so you can go buy a DVD. Just buy it. Yeah, I would absolutely recommend order both it, of them. Order it but that's from just... your online retailers. Exactly. Well, <laughs> that being said, Jake, what's new on streaming platforms this week? Uh, thankfully, not a lot. <laughs> it's, they're running out, it looks like, which is good for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on Netflix this week, we have The Lovebirds, which sees a couple on the brink of a breakup get unintentionally embroiled in a bizarre murder mystery. I watched the trailer for this. It seems funny enough. Okay. It seems like you're seeing a Netflix comedy. It might be a date night a little bit. I've never seen date night. Oh, uh, with like Supergirl and Tina Fey. It's fun. It's a fun time. Um, also, First Man and the 2018 Halloween come to Netflix. So, not bad. They're both okay. Well, Halloween especially is really good. Love yes. Love Halloween 2018. The 2018 one? Yeah. It was a very good... Like it was a B. I think I would have given it like a B. It was fine. It was entertaining. You had so much fun. I did. I think it was more the 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 cinema experience. I'm not sure I'd go and watch it by myself. And uh, I want to go back to it. I love that film. It was it was fun. We had a lot of fun watching it. Oh yeah, Uh, for sure. I think it was a packed screening as well. Like mm, people there. Bad social distancing. (laughs) Just very bad. On stand this week, you have the 2018 doco The Cleaners, 2016's Invisible Waves. A docker series called Who Killed Belinda Pesky? I believe that's how it's pronounced. Uh, the 2019 Spanish film The Days to Come. And lastly, Australia's drama series Redfern Now, which I believe is two series and a telemovie. Wowzers. Wowzers. And coming to Disney Plus is The Big Fib, season one. Uh, the premiere, I should say, from season one. Uh, Disney Goes to the World's Fair, which I think is like a 1964 animated musical thing that they're sort of reviving from the vault mm. um, about the 1964 World's Fair. And the second season of Marvel Future Avengers is coming. So if you liked it, there you go. You can watch it on, on Disney Plus now. Yeah, no worries. Well, we're not watching any of those <laughs> next week on the show. You want to watch Future Marvel, Future, Future Marvel, Future Avengers? I can't say I do. I want to have a stroke. Quite but uh, it. <laughs> obviously, we're moving from the 1990s into the 1980s in our cinema <laughs> side show. Decade retrospective countdown. Retro, countdown through the decades retrospective. Damn, um, good job. <laughs> yeah, it's a um, so, yeah, obviously we moved into another poll this week, voted by the Cinema Sideshow community. The fans. Yeah, to see <laughs> what would be the next film we review. And, uh, Jake, do you want to dive into the, the poll? Right, so the poll uh, last week was really close. This week we're sort of back in Spirit of the Way territory. 28 to 13. So, uh, do the right thing was the loser. Now, this a bit of a shame for me because I actually helped you pick this one. Yeah, on your end, you you were struggling. Eighties is a very hard decade to pick one film from. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of films I wanted to put up for review, but um, I think it was going up against a film that probably had a a, a bit more chance. of a, a a much more beloved popular film, perhaps. So, Jake, um, what are we watching? So, this next week on the show, we're watching Ghostbusters. <laughs> This city is headed for a disaster of biblical proportion. Fire and brimstone, earthquakes, volcanoes, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Enough, I get the point. When Peter, Raymond, and Egon lose their jobs as parapsychologists, they start an establishment called Ghostbusters to fight the evil ghost lurking in New York City. So there you go. 
What? It's, it's Ghostbusters. You know, <laughs> before it was not shit. <laughs> oh, damn. Um, oh, okay. I'm, Name I'm, one person on this planet that likes the twenty. What was it? Twenty eighteen remake. I think it was like twenty six. I here's me. I actually do know one person, and I found this out the other day. But I'm not going to say their name on here because I want them to stay safe from the community. Yes, <laughs> I mean one person one. who actually really liked that one. It's trash. You know what so I'm going to do? Seen it. Yeah. You know what I'm okay. going to do? I haven't seen the sequel to this one, so I'll watch Ghostbusters this week. But I'm going to watch Ghostbusters too. Okay. I, I haven't seen any. I haven't seen any of it. I haven't seen Ghostbusters. Haven't seen any of that. Yeah. I mean, I only watched it relatively recently. I didn't grow up with this film. Right, okay. This wasn't Back to the Future for me, you know. Oh, yeah. We could have done that for the 80s. Yeah, part two, because it's better. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> no you worries. Well, next week on the show, we'll be watching Ghostbusters. But for now, this was the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Ghostbusters. Ooh.